The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am uh, one of your normal hosts, Tom, and I am, I guess, I don't know who to even start with. I guess, uh, Dan, you introduce yourself first, and then we'll go with our guests. Hi, I'm Dan, Tom's usual co-host. <laughs> no. We, we got a Tim next, or me? Uh, Come on, Steve, what are you doing? Get in and... Aren't you the head of the channel? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's right. I'm better than Tim, so I should probably go first. Everybody knows that. Well, I'm Steve from Harbour Unboxed, and I benchmark and review computer hardware, mostly GPUs and CPUs. I think that's what I'm probably most known for. And then I leave all the easy stuff for Tim, and I'll I'll let him introduce himself now. Yeah, hey, it's uh, Tim from Harbour Unboxed, and I do all the easy stuff apparently on Harbour Unboxed, so all the other stuff you see on the channel. So, yeah, nice one, Steve. But, um, yeah, it's good to be here. And you would agree that then with that statement, Tim, that benchmarking laptops, there's not like a lot of variables to take into account, and it's very no, easy. No, no, no variables at all. It's it's super easy to test across different laptops. So yeah, I definitely get the easy stuff. Um, I guess you know. Actually, let me let me start with this first discussion point here. I mean, I've had Steve on before. That was at the end of 2019, actually, if you can believe it. Um, and I went through a bit of your backstory and then Tim as well at the beginning of 2020. So I don't want to go through all of the backstory and the origins of the channel again. I mean, there'll be links in the description if people want to listen to those, but I do want to start somewhere at the beginning of this episode with just Steve, how, how did you meet Tim? You know, when did Tim come onto the channel? What do you, I wonder if you have different answers to what's your first memory of meeting each other? Uh, well, I think we'd probably have the same memory because, well, anyway, but basically, I guess we'll go back to when I discovered Tim. So <laughs> we were, I was writing for TechSpot and uh, it's, I suppose you guys could relate to it a bit. It's one of those jobs where you kind of need a few different skill sets to do it. So mm-hmm. in the case of TechSpot, you obviously need to be pretty tech savvy. You need to be good with photography uh, good at writing, researching, you know, developing contacts and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of different things that are, are probably quite unusual compared to most jobs. So with TechSpot, we saw lots of different guys come and, you know, you think the job, oh, I want to play with computer hardware yeah. and get the latest stuff. What a fun dream job. And then you realize it's actually just a lot of work and some of it is can be quite boring if you're not into, say, photography or image editing or whatever. So we had lots of different guys come through and you know, with varying uh, standards of of work. And then this guy started doing phone reviews. And I was like, wow, these are really high quality phone reviews. And there was some laptop stuff. And I remember being very impressed with it because it was just well above the quality that I'd seen from basically everyone else who had come It's hard to come across that too, by the way. A person who actually does a good job reviewing laptops Mm -hmm. and phones, despite them being arguably the most popular devices. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it really is a needle in a haystack to get somebody that can do the complete job. 
Uh, whereas if it's a big outfit and you have editors and you have photographers and someone doesn't need to be a jack of all trades, it's a bit easier. But for what we do, you sort of need to be able to do it all. So anyway, I was talking with Julio, the owner of TechSpot, and he said, have you met Tim before? And I thought it was a bit of a weird thing to say because I thought he meant maybe just chatted to him on the forum or something. Mm-hmm. I said, no, I haven't really spoke to him at all. He goes, oh, he lives near you. I said, really? And it turns out he was on the other side of the state. So it's three hours away. It's not <laughs> super near, but it's certainly nearer than being in the US. Uh, and I think it was about a year later, I reached out to Tim and just said, well, you want to catch up? I had no idea how old he was. It turns out he was <laughs> couldn't even drive at the time. I can't remember the exact details, but we eventually caught up Tim, I think borrowed a car from um, in-laws or something, drove to my house with a heap of other uh, mates that I organized. And we had, we had like a call of duty session or something. And that's the <laughs> first time I met Tim. So yep. that, that was a lot of fun. And yeah, we, we played computer games for, I don't know, like 10 hours or something. And yeah. And then I think that was, it was a few years then before the Harbour Unboxed relationship started. But I'll let Tim tell some, I won't get waffling on. So if, if I missed I mean- any details... Look, that, that's pretty much it. I was also pretty surprised to learn that. I think I knew, Steve, that you were in Australia, in some, mm-hmm. but I didn't okay. exactly know where. So to be actually only a couple of hundred kilometres away, pretty mm-hmm. unlikely, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I guess it just worked out well. I was I was working a tech spot while I was at uni, and then, yeah, when Steve was starting up the Hard Run Box Channel, I was doing a little bit of video for tech spot at the time. So I was sort of like, oh, Steve, you know, here's probably a couple of things you should do to make your audio and video look good. And I had, like, no experience. I don't know why I was giving any advice. But, um, <laughs> you knew more than me. <laughs> yeah, and then I guess later towards the end of my degree when I sort of had to think about finding a job, um, yeah, it's kind of hard run boxes growing to the point where it's sort of viable-ish. And then we sort of joined forces and, yeah, continued to grow hard run boxes from there. So that's pretty much it, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was honestly curious myself to hear you guys met that. Um, <laughs> it, it's a, I, I guess it makes a lot of sense. You know, we're running in the same circles, and then, as you would expect from a lot of us in this space, bonding over playing a computer game. You know, <laughs> and well, luckily, only being three hours apart on an entire continent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's crazy. Worked out well. So I have a reader mail here uh, from the Moore's Laws Dead community, and it's actually someone that, as far as I can tell, does not have a name on Patreon. I'm not even sure how he did that, but that's something I'm going to have to look into. I couldn't even click on it. I have no idea how he did it. But he says, G'day, Steve and Tim. What's it like being upside down all the time since you're in Australia? Does it make building the PCs harder? And as usual, keep up the good work. Hardware unboxed and Moore's Law is dead. Well, it's... It, we're, we're climatized to it. So it, you're upside down for us. So right. Like the inverse. That's how that works. Yeah. So Tim looks it's kind of like a tenant situation. Right yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you build up like neck and head strength and it really helps deal with the blood flow issue from being upside down. But yeah, yeah if you came down here, you'd be in all sorts. So yeah, yeah. Used to it. Yeah, we're here in the States. We build up our leg strength. So yeah, I mean, that makes perfect <laughs> yeah. sense. That's why they're always, we're always, trainers in the US are always talking about leg day, I guess. Mm-hmm. Horrible yeah, yeah, joke. Ted Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, and then also in preparation for this episode, I kind of re-listened to a few key parts of the previous ones with Steve and Tim, and I thought it might be a bit amusing to bring up what we were talking about. I mean, first I'll bring up you, Steve. You said the most excited, the thing you were most excited for in 2020 
was going to be the Zen 3 release. Um, <laughs> I guess let me ask, did that live up to expectations or exceed them? Or or underperform? <laughs> I think, if anything, it did exceed them. I was very impressed with what they delivered, especially with the gaming performance. So huge, huge step there. But in some ways, it ended up being disappointing. And I suppose that's less on AMD and more just on the, the current climate for PC hardware. So really, you know, I, I'm all about the value stuff. I love the latest and greatest tech, but I also really love the value offerings. And it's very disappointed we didn't get something to replace or truly replace the Ryzen mm-hmm. 5 3600. Because, you know, I personally absolutely loved that CPU. Thought it was awesome, especially leading up to that release. It got down to like 150 US or something, yeah. regularly like 160 US. Absolutely phenomenal gaming CPU for that money. So I sort of dreamt of like a Ryzen 5 5600, even for like yeah. 220 US. That would have been so cool. So exceeded expectations, but then ultimately ended up a bit disappointed, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's happened with a lot of products in the second half of 2020. Another point I have mm. that we talked about is just whether late 2019 was a good time to build a PC. And I was listening to us talk about it for five minutes today. And we were both, I think we both agreed in late 2019. It was like, it's better than average, but it could be better. And it's uh, <laughs> a bit funny to think back to how, how starry-eyed and optimistic we were back then. I yeah, mean, maybe we shouldn't talk about that. <laughs> I, I'm glad I got in and got some some components that are cheap by today's standards. Where my 2700X is now, I think more expensive today than it would have been when I got it. Uh, um, what year and a half ago? You got it for 150 dollars. 130, mm. actually. 130. Oh, wow. <laughs> New. <laughs> um, and I, actually, the other thing that I thought was hilarious is this was right after, uh, Steve, you were accused of taking a bribe money from NVIDIA for having boxes in the background. Um, <laughs> to me, that's just hilarious looking at how there's been a bit of butting of heads, you might say, between hardware and Boxton and video recently. And just two years ago, Steve, you were being accused of being shills for them. Yeah, well, that kind of ebb and flows, doesn't it? We it were does. Joking. It's just every year, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, well, it, we were joking even, I think it was in the Q&A series that we filmed yesterday, where we're saying it's even more extreme than that. Like, I can put out a GPU or a CPU review and simultaneously be accused of being an AMD mm-hmm. shill as well as an NVIDIA shill um, because I've said something nice about AMD and then something nice about NVIDIA or something negative about AMD and whatever the situation may be. But yeah, the, the box thing was obviously, you know, th- that didn't gain much traction. It was a bit hilarious and a bit absurd to begin with. I, I, I do get it because we do have brands and products clearly displayed and I guess some people are sort of like, why would you do that for free? Surely you know, mm. you're getting money for that product placement, but it's more just, it's kind of a storyboard of the products we've been looking at and what we've been reviewing. And it, it changes over time. So if we've just reviewed an RTX graphics card, there's probably going to be a few RTX boxes there. Um, and if you went, if you did a bit of research and went back and looked at our videos, you would see that, you know, after a Radeon review, Radeon boxes appear. And after a Threadripper review, Threadripper boxes appear. So anyway, but yeah, the, obviously the the NVIDIA thing late last year was more serious and actually a legitimate concern uh but yeah yeah and then i guess moving on um 
Tim, I remember our episode was mostly focused on laptops and monitors, as you might expect, actually. And I remember us talking about how impressive Renoir was and how, I, I don't honestly, I, I think most of what we talked about pretty much has come out how we expected. I think we thought Tiger Lake was going to reasonably be competitive with Renoir, which is true, but it's funny how that lasted for a few months and now Cezanne's already out. And I mean, actually, I, I, I guess, did, I guess I might have a specific question then about that. Like, Looking back to early 2020, Tim, like, is AMD in more or less of a competitive position in the laptop market than you expected, you think, last year? Like, has AMD clawed more than you? Did you think Intel would claw back more by now or not? Hmm. I'm not sure whether I expected Intel to necessarily claw back more. I think I was surprised, perhaps with the reception from just the general public Mm -hmm. around AMD laptops, because... A lot of stuff was sold out. There was a lot of interest in those products, which I guess makes sense because from a performance perspective, they were very impressive. But maybe I wasn't expecting as much maybe mainstream interest, especially Mm. in like a a gaming laptop form factor where, you know, Intel has a lot of marketing push and AMD is sort of the underdog. You know, people always thought of it more as a a low-end product in laptops. So I guess I, I was pretty surprised that, the performance that we saw translated to people's interest as quickly as we did. But on the other hand, I think the Intel stuff, yeah, like you say, it's pretty close to how I thought it would play out there in terms of the performance that they'd be able to get with the new design and all that. I think maybe the the graphics element from Intel exceeded my expectations a Mm. little bit in being able to outperform AMD's parts. Uh, I certainly was expecting them to be around the mark, but being a little bit faster is probably not what I expected. But yeah, I think the market's looking really good for laptops. So, yeah, I think AMD's done a pretty good job, but obviously the supply stuff has kind of held them back a bit from being further ahead than where I think they perhaps could be. Yeah, I think from my perspective, it just sometimes feels like because Intel just has such a powerful brand name, especially in laptops, like the Intel sticker, you can tell just... I've had so many OEMs tell me putting the Intel sticker on a laptop just makes it sell you know, a lot better that it was so hard for them to sell any AMD product in a laptop, even all the way back to, I mean, like Athlon or Phenom days, um, that it, I, I mean, I don't, would you agree, Dan? I mean, you got an, a Renoir laptop, but, and I think online we see people just constantly talking about how you have to get Renoir or now Cezanne, and that just kind of happened overnight, and they've had good products before, not like this, but they have, and I, I don't know. I think I agree. I've never thought about that, how quickly this has just happened. And I don't know, I guess maybe that, that ho- maybe I'm being too optimistic, but hopefully that speaks to the um, awareness of the general consumer right now that maybe maybe people are paying more attention to things than they used to. At least it, to me, it seems like over time, consumers become more and more aware. And maybe this, uh, I don't know, brand loyalty, I don't know if you want to call it that, but this Intel, Intel as the default, I guess I'll say, maybe doesn't really hold as much water as people think it does. Well, you know, let, let me ask, yeah, both Steve and Tim that, like, you guys read your comments every now and then, I've noticed. I mean, <laughs> Ryzen 1 was good. It was pretty competitive with most of Intel's mobile offerings. You know, you'd say maybe the best, I I, I mean, correct me if you disagree, but I, I would say the best Intel chips maybe were better than the best Ryzen 1 chips and laptops, but AMD was really competitive, even... I think with Ryzen 1 and laptops, did you see a change at any certain point in the comments or in your community 
where really it was hitting home that AMD was competitive in mobile again. Yeah, I mean, I think the the sentiment around the first couple of generations of the the Ryzen stuff in laptops was that the performance was there, especially in the U series, not as much in like the lap the gaming laptop mm. market, the H series stuff. But there was a lot of issues with drivers and stability, which I guess was a common theme a little bit with the desktop stuff as well. But it was more pronounced on mobile because I think the graphics drivers on the APU side in those early generations was yes. pretty buggy. I know someone who had to deal um, with that in my personal life. Yeah. Yeah. So, and on top of that, there were not that many designs. So, if you did want an AMD product, you were kind of stuck with, do I buy the the HP Envy mm-hmm. or what else? There was like maybe a couple yeah. more designs. Whereas I think, I think what's really helped AMD as well is a lot of the discussion in the mainstream market, especially right now, is stuff around like Apple's M1 silicon beating Intel silicon, which makes Intel, even without talking about AMD, it kind of makes Intel's products seem inferior. And a lot of the talk has been, oh, Intel's very, you know, they're not improving their products very much. Laptops aren't faster this generation than previous generations. So even if you don't really introduce AMD into that market, the general consumer thinking is like, oh, well, I'm buying a new Intel laptop. It's not that much faster. So maybe that has helped people a little bit more no. in that way. And I think that's kind of been a, a turning point that we've seen in the comments more recently with, with these parts is like, oh, well, I've been, I've been waiting for years and years for Intel to give me more laptop performance, but actually now it's AMD doing that for me. So I think that's helped a fair bit. Yeah, it's funny. I think you're right. You, I mean, I, I, you could be like almost asleep at the wheel from 2012 to 2017. It's just going to be whatever the latest 45-watt quad-core model is in a gaming laptop, whether it's just going to go Ivy Bridge, Haswell, you know, and then probably not Broadwell unless you're buying a Mac or something, and then Skylake. It didn't really matter. It was just whatever the latest 45-watt is just being thrown into those gaming laptops. There wasn't a whole lot of decision-making back then. Well, yeah. 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 (laughs) And to be fair, I mean, uh, AMD didn't even put out a new... CPU in that entire time period you mentioned. So they're, they were. Well, they did uh, in laptops though, Dan. They, they did. Oh, you're right. You're right. They had but. excavator, but they were impossible to get. Like, yeah. I actually liked a couple of the excavator models and I, I really could, I could not find one laptop with one of the models, not, not a single one. <laughs> All right. So I guess let me just move on then into a couple of reader mails before we get into the graphics card discussion. Beachhorn writes in and says, how do you see the effects of hardware-accelerated GPU scheduling and direct storage shaping CPU requirements for non-bottlenecking graphics card performance over the next year or two? Now, that's something me and Tim talked about a year ago as well. Like, how oh, the consoles, there's all this hype about the I.O. and streaming and assets. Like, you know, how do you see these new um, features shaping the kinds of CPUs we'll need for games? Or do you? Well... Yeah, I mean, it's yet to be seen, isn't it? Where mm-hmm. you talked about that with Tim a year ago, still no real examples of it. So I don't have too much to say about it without having been able to test it. We're not really sure what impact it'll have there and how much it'll jack up the requirements for you know CPU overhead, I suppose. So yeah, it's difficult to say, I suppose, too much about that without a single example to draw on. Would you say, Tim? Yeah, especially for direct storage, it's it's kind of like, well, it was announced as a feature probably a year ago when we talked on the on the podcast yeah. last time, but that's like announced for developers. So <laughs> if developers have had it a year ago, how many games get developed in a year, especially AAA titles that would 
be likely to use a feature like this? Probably not very many. So yeah, probably still a while away on that. I think the other part you mentioned was hardware accelerated GPU scheduling, which is probably a more relevant thing based on the sort of testing that Steve's done recently where yeah, it looks like that may have more of an impact for people, especially who have mid-range CPUs and stuff, as you would have seen in, in Steve's video. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if it's still on the script, but I know another reader mail I read preparing for this was, why is it taking so long for direct storage to you know appear? Like, why isn't it in games yet? And it, to be honest, um, I'm I, 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 there's a couple people I talk to when I do research for some things that are game developers, and I'm just like, so everyone listening, like they, they're like, it's not, it's not around the corner. You know, this is like a, a thing that's probably going to be used, I think, end of this year, maybe, or something in a couple of games. I know that they keep talking about it, but I don't, I don't think it's really ready. I think it was a thing they started working on for Ampere. And this is just my opinion here. When the console's starting getting hyped up, if we're being entirely honest, that, that's honestly where I think a lot of that comes from. Yep. Okay, so <laughs> Root Knight writes in and says, how do you feel about the looming threat of having to make yet another video on the RX 570 still being a relevant choice in 2021? I mean, <laughs> Polaris really has stood the test of time, I think more than anyone expected. Or I don't know, would you agree that you're surprised it's still being talked about? Yeah, I mean, especially if you've got the 8 gigabyte model, um, that works a lot better. I mean, yeah, I'm surprised and not surprised. It's because like AMD hasn't really set about replacing it. Like the 5500 XT was kind of not good, let's say. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? It was a 590 for 590 <laughs> prices a year later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So also with the GIMPed PCI Express, yeah. so you really needed 4.0. So, so it was kind of in some ways a step backwards, mm -hmm. uh, really. I mean... It only had the same amount of bandwidth if you use PCI Express 4.0. So it's like that's that's not helpful. Which a lot of people, um, you know, buying a cheap graphics card <laughs> might not have the latest two hundred dollar motherboard. Yes, exactly, um, or at least be on the latest platform. So yeah, it, it hasn't really been properly replaced. And Nvidia have proven not to be super uh, aggressive, you know, competing at that lower end price segment. So yeah, what we've got like what the sixteen fifty that was pretty crap the 1650 super was a lot better uh, but that came later so yeah i mean i don't know how relevant it is now to be buying new well of course if you could buy it now for that that price it would be what everyone would be buying so there is that uh but yeah it's still a capable graphics card like if you want to play it 1080p medium settings it's it's going to deliver playable performance in virtually all games there won't be too many that really trip it up so it's Still a good card, but unfortunately, what are they now? Like probably 200 US, 300 US, something like that. Yeah, I think I had a friend that just sold one for over 300 on eBay. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. So, yeah, I mean, uh, we've talked about this as well. Like I think if I was faced with having to buy a graphics card today and then they were all out of stock, which, you know, let's be honest, they mostly are. And then you had the eBay scalper prices where you're paying absurd premiums. I think I would rather pay too much for something like an 8 gigabyte RX you know, 580 or 570 mm -hmm. and just cop that 100 to $200 loss there yeah, just rather like, than spend... Yeah, I'm burning 100 like, instead of like 500 Exactly. I think that's how I would go about it and just make do for now. Um, but I guess it, it'll be proven whether that would be a smart play or not probably 12 months down the track. So we'll, cause we'll see. Because I guess if everything becomes a lot cheaper and more available you know, in a year's time, then 
I think getting a 570 now and wasting a couple hundred bucks probably mm. would have been the right play. But if it's a situation that where it hasn't really changed, then you might as well just bite the bullet now, pay, you know, lose the $500 or whatever it may be for the scalper prices and enjoy the superior performance now and in a year's time. So a bit of a roll of the dice as to what you do on that one. Yeah, I mean, uh, the fear I have with like uh, the idea of replacing something like Polaris is that that was designed from the ground up to be really cheap to make. You know, it's just eight gigabytes GDR5, you know, on a cheaper node. And AMD, especially from my latest talks with like Daniel Nenny, who works in semiconductors and those types is AMD's, uh, you know, full steam ahead TSMC. And in fact, mm-hmm. all evidence is they are going to try to even more aggressively get everything on the newest node. Like actually the way he talked about it is how Apple always goes to the newest node, but then they keep doing that. So they leave all this capacity behind them. And AMD's strategy right now is basically to eat up the capacity Apple keeps leaving every year on their newest products. But, you know, seven nanometer is like double the price of 16. And I think five nanometer is going to be expected to be at least 50%, 60, 80% more. So, and and I I fear that we're going to get to a point where even the performance increase isn't one-to-one with the price increase for the silicon. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where the price, I don't know where a replacement to the 580 comes from. You know, I used to make fun of how cheap the actual silicon was in the graphics cards. It used to be like 20 bucks of the overall cost on the cheaper cards. But once it becomes 50, 100, 150, 200, I don't know if there's even room for low-end graphics cards anymore in the future if AMD keeps staying that aggressive. And we know NVIDIA is certainly not going to be likely mm-hmm. to keep things cheap. I don't know if you guys have thought about that, Tim or Steve, at all about what place low-end graphics cards have in this market based on what we're seeing right now and like demand for the higher-end stuff. I would really hope that some company, I know you're saying AMD would be super aggressive on new nodes, which is probably the play that they will go with, but I really would hope that companies realize that you can just sell old products. There's nothing wrong with selling an RX 580 today if it's still a really good value product and you just keep lowering the price over time as you know higher end stuff is, is produced. And you see that even with a company like Apple, like they still mm-hmm. produce old iPhones that, you know, so they're not just selling the iPhone 12, they're selling the the 10 and the, the previous generation products. Um, so I think hopefully a company uses that sort of strategy if they can't make products on the leading edge nodes at that sort of price. Because I guess the other alternative is like, do we see APUs come into that space, like integrated graphics? And there's just no signs at all that the performance is going to be anywhere near adequate for that sort of thing so I, I don't think in the immediate future i think in like two years we'll we might see those types of apus but i i don't think it's going to happen soon though yeah 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 i don't know i feel like in the me- short to midterm kind of the really the only way it can go at this point is replace uh the low end is replaced by apus or like you said tim older graphics cards i don't really know where else we we go it seems like the low end is going extinct in the mid-range is kind of i don't know (laughs) starting to drop out a little bit too but well you know i did a video called like the idea for an rx 6490 as i called it like something on a last gen node that would be like around the same performance of what like a 6500 xt is but it's just not as efficient it's made on global foundries or samsung or some outdated thing 
the cheaper RAM. And hey, maybe it uses 250 watts, but I don't think anyone will care if they can actually get it for a reasonable price. And honestly, the conclusion I came to there is like, they might keep producing something like an RX 590 and like rebrand that. But I think the alternative is going to be just they rebrand Navi 22, actually. I, I actually think that's what their solution will probably be when they move to 5 nanometer. But that's not right now, unfortunately. Yeah, and right now there's just no incentive to go out of their way to do that anyway because they're mm. obviously making graphics cards to make money and they only offer lower-end products to capture that market where people don't want to buy more expensive products. Mm-hmm. But they're in a situation now where they just can't make enough products and whatever they make, whatever price it is, it sells. So as I've said time and time again, we're not going to get good value GPUs in this current market. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. So the conversation we're having now, we won't really get an answer until you know supply versus demand returns to normality and then we can work out what they're actually able to offer. Because right now, you're just not going to know. There's certainly no good value products coming this generation. Like people have been asking me, will the 6600 XT be good value? I'm like, no, nah, there's no way it will be. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, it's just not going to be. It's funny you say that because there's rumors coming out about a 3070 Ti, and at least, and you know, people listening can choose to believe me or not. But I have a couple sources I talked to about it, and it sounds like it's almost entirely confirmed to be full GA 104 with eight gigabytes of GDR6X, which to me sounds a little funny because, I I mean, I just reviewed the 3070 and I got a decent amount more performance by overclocking the memory. Like it seemed a little bandwidth starved. And so I imagine, you know, that was just with like a 20% memory overclock, it gained around 10% performance. If you put GDR6X on a full GA104 die, I think you could maybe get that thing to 15, 20% more performance. But then I go, okay, but if it has eight gigabytes, what are they going to price this at? Because it'll be very close to the 6,800 in performance. Are they really going to release a $600 card that has half the RAM as the 6,800, but do it because they know it will sell anyways and just say, oh, well, I think this, I think I would suggest probably actually. (laughs) Tim's nodding yes for those listening. They'll just price it as high as they possibly can so that reviews aren't like, this is the worst value product ever. Mm-hmm. So something like the 6700 XT where it's like $20 less yeah. is like, that's the absolute maximum they could have priced that card without people being like, well, it's the same as a 3070 but slower, so get a 3070. So they'll just mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. They forget the VRAM argument. As long as they can just sell it, then they'll just do whatever is cheapest. Yeah, I guess they're going to price it at like five fifty, but I would be really impressed if they made it five sixty nine, like just ten dollars less than the sixty eight hundred, and that's their excuse. Which they can always drop prices in the future if supply meets demand, though. I think that's what a lot of people are forgetting as well. Like the sixty seven hundred XT should probably be four hundred dollars or whatever, but it could be if there's a flood of cards to the market after a mining crash or something. So, Kerry Baldino writes in and asks, are you guys, Steve and Tim, protecting your computers from the hordes of spiders escaping the flooding right now? <laughs> Make sure to keep those dust covers on. <laughs> and then, uh, do you have an answer for that one, Steve? Well, fortunately, we don't have the flooding issue here. It's oh. the state above us. So, oh, kind of yeah, we're, we're in Victoria, lucky. so no flooding here at the moment. Uh, but yeah, it sucks for the guys up there. It's been quite devastating. 
And he says, real question though, as a review and unboxing channel, does the current market situation make you rethink the types of videos you have going out, even if you are able to get your hands on the equipment to go over it? Do you want me to handle that, Tim? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, well, I think Tim would probably agree. We have been rethinking things a little bit this year because obviously it's not a whole lot of fun reviewing products that people can't get or the vast majority of our viewers can't get. the people get. And also who want them can't get, yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I meant viewers. I don't know if I said reviewers, but... Um, so we've we've been knocking back AIB card reviews and stuff like that. We've been doing more sort of content like what we're doing right now, discussion pieces, talking about you know Q and A type stuff, shifting focus away from that, and even the big benchmark videos. We haven't really been looking into a whole lot of Zen three like the parts you couldn't buy, the higher end no. parts and stuff like that. So yeah, I guess we have change things a bit. Like normally, I would have probably already done like you know RTX 3070 roundup and. 6800 XT roundup and so on and so forth. But yeah, I looked at a few initially and the the feedback from viewers wasn't great, at least in the comment section. It's like people, <laughs> so, some people seem to have found it useful and enjoyed it, but then, you know, you, you get the vocal minority, I suppose. And let's be honest, just the interest in general just has, all. I think all tech channels have seen a viewership dip just because, yeah, it's hard to get excited about products that you're, unlikely to buy or unlikely to be able to buy. So yeah, we've made some changes. You know, an interesting question I just thought of about this is, do you think that the interest in that type of stuff is down because people can't get it or because there's no potential for them to get it? Because I, you know, I've watched, I've been, I'll admit it. I've been a fan of hardware unboxed for a while. And I, you know, I, and I guess I'll say this as well, just to remind people, it's like, even if we can get our hands on these products, sometimes we have a loss. I, I'll speak for myself. I have less interest when I see other people aren't able to get the stuff they want, but it's still yeah, interesting stuff to talk about. Um, and, but then I go, you know, I watched hardware unboxed for a while and I'll watch them review 30 graphics cards. I had no plans ever to buy all 30 of those graphics cards, but do you think it's the potential that people know they could buy what they're watching that makes them have, you know, more interest in it yeah. in the past? Yeah, exactly. That's 100% it. Uh, it's like doing research for no point. So there'll, mm -hmm. there'll obviously be a percentage of people who watch it no matter what because they're just massively into tech and they want to know yeah. which card's good and which one's not, even though they have no intention of buying it. Maybe it's just knowledge they want if they have to give advice to somebody. They just want to know, you know or they're interested in seeing if there's any crap products. Um, so, yeah, we will get some viewers, but when, I, I don't know what percentage, but you know, mm. throw a number out, say 60% of the views that we get in that video are people actually genuinely wanting to research that product and you're just not capturing those people anymore. Um, yeah, so th there's, a, there's a few different factors there of why we haven't done a whole lot of AIB reviews. It's like less views, so already, you know, we don't just make content for views, but if it's tanking, it's like it's hard to invest a heap of time and effort into it. And then when a lot of the people that are watching the video, or at least the people who would comment... Um, a sort of like, what's the point of this? Why are you doing this? You know, and there'd be the aggressive <laughs> comments like, you what's know, wrong with um, you? Yeah, nice yeah, flexing, yeah. showing us your new graphics card when <laughs> oh, I can't oh, get oh. one. I'm like, I'm not flexing, well, it's my job. <laughs> that's like the obvious salty ones. And then there's people like accusing us of being corporate shills because, you know, we know people can't buy them, but we're still giving them product placement and, 
exposure and all this stuff that we shouldn't be giving them because they're not doing their job by providing stock and all that kind of stuff. Like I would say, maybe I'm exaggerating, but a good like 70 to 80% of the comments seem to be that on the AIB reviews. <laughs> yeah. So, and a big motivator for me to make that content is people enjoying it. So, yeah. you know, spending an hour pulling a card apart and working at where the hotspots are and putting the K-type thermocouples in all the appropriate places and then reassembling the card, you know, testing it, then spending hours getting B-roll shots of the card disassembled and reassembled and benchmarking and doing all the stuff. Like it's days and days of work just to create one card review and then have it be watched by less than probably half the people yeah. that normally would and then a lot of people not interested in it. It's like, uh, I, I don't really, I'm not feeling super motivated to go repeat <laughs> this process all over again another 10 times. So we just shifted to, yeah, discussion videos and I don't know, a few just random different things, which we've been having fun with anyway. So it's been an interesting experiment, I would say. Yeah, I'd say it's a bit unfortunate too, because there really is a lot to talk about. I mean, if if all mm. of these cards were at their MSRPs and we could get them easily, or even if you aren't really going to buy all 10 of them, you knew you could if you wanted to. And so you're researching all of them because it's fun to like think about, oh, maybe I'll get this too. I mean... It, it really is like competition hasn't been this good for, I mean, I don't know. I, I think I could make the argument in my entire life, honestly. Like, I yep. think I could. Yeah, um, definitely. But that's kind of what I want to talk about a decent amount here in this episode as well as what you guys think about the state of, um, I mean, let's just start with like Radeon versus NVIDIA competition. I mean, I, I guess, I, I guess actually let's start with, from a technological perspective, how do you see Radeon versus NVIDIA now? Like, let's not even talk about price. Like, their true raw ability to compete with the products they're making versus the products NVIDIA making versus, even I don't know, even just a few years ago. Well, you know, leading up to the, the big Navi release, I kept saying to everybody, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> like, because I've done too many Vega launches and yeah, I was I was blown away by the performance. I was like, wow, this is genuinely good. And they're genuinely competing right at the top. Like when we saw, you know, everyone saw the RTX 3080 reviews. I think someone like, I think it was Hardware Canucks tweeted mm -hmm. out, you know, good luck competing with that AMD or something like that. And, <laughs> you know, seems a bit foolish now. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, I was quietly thinking this is, that's a tall order. Like that's the 3080, the 3090 still to come. And sure, that thing wasn't really much faster, but you know that was a big step forward. And then having them come out and yeah, match it and beat it in some areas was really impressive. So they're they're right up there in terms of uh, raw performance. Anyway, they're they're very competitive. Obviously, there's things like you know they've got to get their DLSS competitor sorted out. Um, you can argue how important that is all day, really. But um, I think for for a market where it's very competitive, a normal market. It, that's a feature that will, you know, be something that gamers are on the lookout for. You, you guys know our opinion on ray tracing. Um, <laughs> obviously, it'll be ideal for them to catch up there over the next few generations. But right now, I think a DLSS competitor is much more important. And there's a few other little bits and pieces that you know the Radeon Group has to sort out. But yeah, they've got a very compelling lineup at the moment. And if they can, you know, make another step forward from here, then yeah, Nvidia is going to have. Uh, a much more difficult time than they have over the past few years. Kind of like what I suppose Intel mm -hmm. has had a free ride for how many years now, and they've got some 
even more serious competition on the CPU front. And the fact that AMD has, I think the thing with AMD over the years, I mean, I mean I've been doing this mm-hmm. for uh, 20 years now, um, and ever since they acquired ATI, I can't recall, well, there definitely hasn't been a period in time where it's like, wow, Radeon GPUs are so good and AMD CPUs are also so yes, good. Yes, at the same it's, time. I agree. <laughs> yeah. It's like one's just always been a steaming pile, <laughs> to I, I, put it bluntly. I think the closest would just be, I think this was an overlap, the Phenom 2 HD 5000 series. AMD did take the flagship with the HD 5000, and they were at least competitive in efficiency with HD 6000. And... Mm-hmm. I believe Phenom 2, I, I remember there's like this six-month window, like right before Nehalem had finished rolling out, where AMD CPUs were still pretty good. But this dominant mm-hmm. in one of them, while the other's about a tie. No, I agree. I don't think this has ever happened before. Yeah, it definitely hasn't, which is why it's sort of unfortunate that they've had the seven nanometer constraints that they have had, where they couldn't just flood the market with you know, 6,000 mm-hmm. series GPUs. And you know, that would have really hurt NVIDIA if they could have done that at, at that time. But at least they're competitive and they can they can build from here. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the next few generations go, if they can continue making the, the steps and progress that they have made to this point. You know, I think one thing you said that I, I think is a really good point. The last broken silicon me and Dan did, one of the reader mail questions was about how I was maybe playing up the DirectX 12 overhead thing with NVIDIA too much. And I, uh, me and Dan's response was, I don't, I don't think we are. I think we're saying it's a big deal. It's only because when they're this close in performance, you have tiebreakers. And a tiebreaker is something like DLSS or which one overclocks better or the DirectX 12 overhead thing. I mean, like uh, this reader mail like talked about how in most games it's not an issue, but and then he's like, well, but I play Warzone, and that actually was a pretty big problem between them. And so I'm like, so there, right there, though, that's a game you play, and it made a big difference in that game. These cards perform the same. So that should be the reason you bought an AMD card in that circumstance, if that's the game you play. Yeah, that it, it's a tough one. That It's definitely an advantage, period. Like, it is an absolute fact that it requires... A, at roughly 20% less CPU power to deliver you know, performance. So that the Radeon GPUs require 20% less. So if if you wanted all things equal, like you wanted to be utilizing the same percentage of the CPU, with a GeForce GPU, you need 20% more powerful CPU. Um, but where it's a complete non-issue is if you're buying latest and greatest hardware, so you're buying a powerful CPU and a powerful GPU, it's, it really doesn't matter. It makes absolutely no difference. There are so little it's difficult to measure. But where it's, where it's a big problem is for people with older hardware. So mm-hmm. if you've got, like, like I showed, and again, mostly DirectX 12 titles that can be seen in DirectX 11, but the DirectX 11 game has to use the command list feature, so it has to be able to break those draw calls up across the available uh, calls. Mm-hmm. If, it, if it can't do that and it's single-thread limited, then NVIDIA will actually have an advantage. So with DirectX 11, typically NVIDIA does have an advantage. With Vulkan, um, the overhead is less of an issue there for very technical reasons that I won't get into now, but... They basically don't have to do the full resubmit thing that they have to do in DirectX 12. So it's like a, it's, it's a double whammy in DirectX 12, which is why it's like 20% with 
With Vulcan, it may be like 5 to 10%. I haven't got a whole lot of super CPU-intensive Vulcan games to test with or that I have tested with yet, but there yeah. is a video on the channel that you'll you'll see. It's actually coming out tonight, so by the time you watch this, it'll, it'll be there. So a bit confusing, but yeah, it's more, it affects, I would say it's less of a deal for the high-end GPUs, more of an issue for the mid-range to low-end because typically those users aren't upgrading their whole computer at once or they're not buying like you know CPUs with plenty of overhead to spare. They're playing like Warzone with a six-core processor mm-hmm. and that's where you'll absolutely notice it. Um, but yeah, people have, since I released that video, sort of opened a can of worms on that one. People have been a bit confused when and where it applies. But it's it's very simple to work out. If your CPU is being f- utilized to 80 to 100%, and that's fully utilized as in across all cores, mm-hmm. so not just single thread, if you're seeing total CPU usage of 80% or greater, that's when it'll start to come into play and you will see not only higher frames with Radeon GPUs, but perhaps more crucially, smoother, more consistent performance because obviously when you start maxing out the CPU... Yeah. You start, you know, the stuttering and all that stuff's introduced. So, yeah, how big of a deal it is, it's, it is it is hard to say. It really does depend on the hardware. And the video that I have, my second video, I tested with the Core i7 4790K. So, obviously, that's a quad core with hyperthreading, but there's a lot of Intel popular gaming CPUs that are quad cores with hyperthreading that are still in use today. Um, if you look at Steam, for example, yeah. most people use four core processors. And that's where it makes a huge difference. So uh, I was, if you play Fortnite, uh, I, I tested with a Team Rumble game, which is like all the players late game. Mm-hmm. They're, they're all in the same area. So that's about as CPU intensive as that game gets. Uh, an RX 580 with that CPU will be faster than an R- RTX 3080. <laughs> so because yeah. what happens is, what happens is basically all the GeForce GPU, and mind you, the RTX 3080 is still playable. So that is worth keeping in mind. It's not a situation where the overhead means non-playable performance on GeForce GPUs and that it becomes playable on Radeon. It just means for people who are seeking maximum FPS, you can get 20% more performance. So there's a lot of things to cover on this subject, but basically what I was seeing was about, let's say, 100 FPS with the... Uh, GeForce GPUs, and then you were able to get like 120, 130 FPS with the Radeon GPUs. It was like all the GeForce GPUs were like stuck there on a brick wall from like GTX 1060 to RTX 3080, and the Radeon GPUs were all a bit further out. So if you're buying a a GPU for maximum performance, it makes sense in that situation to get a Radeon GPU because anywhere where your CPU limited, you're getting instantly 20% more performance, which is not insignificant. Well, and what me and Dan talked about is, you know, I'm not really concerned about the person who has an R5-1600 and a 3090. No, I do not think that person probably exists, nor am I concerned about the really low-end mm. gamer. But I think mm-hmm. there's plenty of people that might have a 2700X or mm-hmm. a six-core i5 from Coffee Lake, and they were like, oh, I was able to get a good deal on a 3080 or a 3070. And those people exist. People who mm-hmm. bought a 2700X, it was a high-end CPU, and then thought they'd be fine getting a 3080, and now they may have to do a double take. There's a lot of people, I suspect, that might fall in that category. Yeah, so to add a bit more information to that category, if you're targeting 4K gaming or you know 1440p ultra or whatever with ultra-quality settings, 
it's less likely to creep into that because you will be yeah. primarily GPU bound. So it's really about the people who want to do that because they want to shoot for the maximum FPS to take advantage of their high refresh rate monitor. If you're doing that, then yeah, a Radeon GPU will give you in some instances, you know, 20, even over 20%. We saw it 25-ish percent in, in some of those uh, cases where you're really pushing for maximum FPS. So yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of sort of disclaimers and, and things you have to be aware of. It, it is quite complicated, but yeah, it, it comes down to the games you play, the quality settings, your targeting, and then of course the CPU. And that is the current state of it, right? Because I had a note in the notes for this podcast. I've seen a lot of people throw out a bunch of suggestions about what's causing it and, oh, this one YouTuber <laughs> fixed it. I, I, as far as I can <laughs> tell, it's a developing story, but that's that is still just the, and I'm asking because I don't follow it super closely all the time. And that is the current state of it, then, right? What you just described, to your knowledge, it hasn't like evolved uh, into some Windows update. It's not someone suggesting no, a Windows no, no, update no. caused it or something like that. No, I'm talking about this very confidently now for okay. having done a heap of research and a heap of testing. It is explained much better in my second video, but essentially it boils down to. NVIDIA using a C, doing all the bulk of the scheduling on the CPU. So mm -hmm. they, they don't have the, the, they haven't got the die to do that. There's no, they haven't allocated silicon real estate to mm -hmm. a GPU scheduler, whereas AMD has. Okay. So basically, that work isn't done on the CPU for the Radeon GPUs, whereas the NVIDIA GPUs require the CPU to do that. So it creates that mm -hmm. overhead. Interesting. So Illyrium writes in and says, Steve, you did everyone a solid by figuring out the overhead in NVIDIA's drivers and how it affected real-world performance. But looking back, do you think that this was what some people were talking about when they were saying that pairing an AMD CPU with an AMD GPU had better performance? Thank you for everything. Your impartiality is an example to any profession. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, for the Radeon GPU, um, AMD CPU, yeah, I mean, it could be maybe... I guess I've said in the past that that's not not entirely a thing either, but again, it depends on how you're testing. Like if you yeah. look at the way we've tested traditionally, then it's not really a thing. But again, we don't test in a way that covers all bases. So mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. use their hardware in different ways. They have different requirements, different things they're doing. So there is definitely, well, there's evidence now. So there is certainly truth to that. I think the problem with those sort of statements is you see it from people who would look a bit more red fanboyish dare i say and they try to how just, dare you <laughs> i know i'm i'm, I'm sorry um, they try to just generalize and say that no you will without a doubt get better performance with that configuration mm. which isn't true for most situations again depending on well i think most situations would be most people targeting sort of higher quality gaming i think I'm generalizing, but I think most people who buy like an RTX 3080 are looking at sort of high to ultra type quality settings rather than sort of medium to low. Yeah. Um, that puts you more as an esports gamer, which I don't know if that's the bulk of people watching our content. It seems to be people more like Tim who play, you know, Assassin's Creed type games with maximum fidelity. Um, and what was, was what was the first part of that question again? Did I did I address all of it, or did I, I think there was a first? No, I th I think there. you did. And the, what I okay. would throw on top is it it really does depend on the configuration. Like, was it a, was mm -hmm. it because there could be situations where it's like, oh, in this one game, because it's a PCIe 4.0 graphics card, it gains a few percentage points with an AMD mm -hmm. processor with PCIe 4.0. I think mm -hmm. there's just been a lot of examples in the past where sometimes it could have been a bunch of different things, but I don't think it was ever. I, I, 
I guess the what I would add on to his question though is do you think this is something we just noticed now or is it at all new? Um okay, so yeah, actually that was part of the question I wanted to address as well. So it's it's been a thing ever since Kepler. So Kepler's Fermi okay. was this big big hot complex architecture, bit of an embarrassment for Nvidia, a lot of negative publicity over that. So they're like, okay, we have to solve the Fermi problem. And they did that to a degree with Kepler. And a big way they were able to do that was removing their, mm. I think they called it their, their gigathread scheduler. So, and that's when it became this driver trickery that was able to do, their driver's quite ingenious really, but because it was handled from the driver or software side, it was for the CPU to handle. So it allowed them to make their mm. uh, GPUs less complex, which made them more efficient. And that gave them an advantage over AMD because AMD had to do things the way they did it because they developed GCM with Sony because it was designed for the consoles mm. and the consoles certainly can't do software scheduling. <laughs> Not um, with those, it would just uh, destroy them. Ones. Yeah. <laughs> So to answer the question, it's easier. To, <laughs> it's, no, but it's so I'm random. honestly you, learning a lot about this. This is you, a very comprehensive ex- summary, though. <laughs> yeah, you, you, but you've got to you've got to explain so much. Otherwise, it's like you, the answer doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. So um, why it's easier to detect now is basically short answer. We have a lot more DirectX 12 games that mm-hmm. are very CPU demanding. That's pretty much it. That's the main reason. So we didn't have Watch Dogs Legion to test with. We didn't have Horizon Zero Dawn. Mm-hmm. We didn't have all these new... Like, you think about the early DirectX 12 games. They weren't really DirectX 12 games. They were DirectX no. 11 <laughs> games. That they kind of, look, we've patched in DirectX 12 and it makes it worse. I would argue it was stutter mode added on to a DirectX 11 game half the time. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's easier, it's easier to detect now because we have more DirectX 12 pure DirectX 12 games or games that were you know, focused, the DirectX 12 was the focus, like Watch Dogs Legion has DirectX 11, um, even Shadow of the Tomb Raider has DirectX 11, but it runs like absolute garbage in most areas, whereas DirectX 12 is significantly better and is mm-hmm. definitely the API you would use. So that's that's one factor. The other factor is we have Radeon GPUs for comparison with GeForce GPUs over the entire product stack. So, for yeah, example... Yeah, that's true if, as well, yeah. Say I had have looked into this a few years ago and I was going, here's, a, here's an RX 580 at 1080p low. <laughs> and a 1080 Ti. <laughs> compared to like a 1080 Ti and people would be like, that's unrealistic test conditions, you know, and they just write it off. They wouldn't pay attention to it. But because I think the reason my first video had such an impact was because I tested so many GPU configurations with a few different CPU configurations with different quality settings and resolutions and it really painted a clear picture of what was going on. And I think that was the difference. And had I not had high-end Radeon GPUs, it would have been a bit like unclear of what we were really trying to show or what was going on. So yeah, that's (laughs) that's the answer to that one. Sorry for the the waffle, but it's it's difficult to quickly explain. Well I I I honestly legitimately really appreciated hearing all of that because those you you answered a little questions I've had in the back of my head that I haven't had time to go through all of that myself. Um, but you, what you just said too, kind of brings it back full circle. This was kind of a detour from the state of Radeon and NVIDIA competition that we were talking about. And so mm-hmm. I, I, you know, anyone can chime in. I think we mostly agree they're, they're pretty competitive. You know, anything, any feature one of them has can be a tiebreaker because of how close they are. And it hasn't been like this for a while. I mean, if the MSRPs of these cards where their MSRP is, which 
who do you think would have the better lineup right now? And I would I would argue we have to pretend the 6700 XT is like 429 or something because I think we just know mm-hmm. it would not have that MSRP if it wasn't for the current state of things. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if it was more normal times, AMD would definitely have to actually attempt to be competitive on pricing, and we've seen them do that in the past. And yeah, you're right. The, the price would be at least yeah around that mark. So it it'd be one of those situations really it's a it depends like what are you prioritizing what do you want they're both they're both very competitive and they're both valid options and I don't think it's a situation really where you'd be like oh I bought a 6800 XT I wish I had got an RTX 3080 or vice versa they're both blistering fast really high quality products so you can't lose either way really it's, do you it's think not, The VRAM thing, though, makes it a bit of an issue because I'm going to be honest. I just reviewed the 3070. I'm I'm being honest. I had multiple games all the way going back to 2019. I just couldn't. I could play them in 4K on the Radeon 7. I now couldn't on the 3070 Uh because it ran out Uh of RAM. And these Uh were games I was actually running with decently high refresh rates in 4K. Now I had to turn down a few settings, but I couldn't tell the difference between these settings, between high and ultra. And now I just, nope, 1440p. And in fact, eventually in a couple sections, one of them was Resident Evil 2, I had to turn down a couple settings, like in I think the big main room in the middle there, because it was just crushing the VRAM buffer again on the 3070. And I was like, God, if this thing had 16 gigabytes, this would be playing this game 4K 100 like it's nothing. Yeah, look, that card definitely should have had 16 gigabytes. There's no question about it. And that's been one of the big issues I've had with the um, 3070. I think, um, sort of to answer your previous question, I don't think there's a product stack that you could point to and go, that is the superior product stack. Because as I said, they're just so competitive. So it's more like, if I had to quickly summarize it, I think the 6800 XT and the 3080, I'd probably go the 3080 in that one. But then the 3070 and the 6800, I think... I'd probably go the 6800. Uh, mm. It's a bit more expensive, but twice the VRAM. And I, I, I think it'll certainly be the superior product in a few years' time. Um, and then what have we got below that? We've sort of got, well, you've got the six. If you drop to the 60, <laughs> Let's pretend 700 the 6700 XT, XT and the 3060 Ti are the same price. I think we have to pretend. Then, yeah, then the 6700 XT, I think, would be the fairly obvious choice there. Um, again, DLSS is a powerful tool for the 3060 Ti, but just, again, not enough games yet support it. I know support is improving, but that'd be an individual thing. You'd have to look at the games you play. Like if you primarily play like Fortnite that has DLSS support, then maybe the 3060 Ti would be a better choice. But at the same price, the 6700 XT would be very compelling. Well, just on that, I think when it comes to DLSS, it's less of a selling point at lower end GPUs because you're less likely to be playing those games at higher resolutions. And what mm-hmm. we've seen from DLSS over the years is that it's pretty good at 4K. It's only okay at 1440p. And in my opinion, it's not very good at 1080p. Mm-mm. So mm-hmm. if you've got those mid range cards like a 360 Ti, which is more likely to be your 1440p and 1080p product, then DLSS is not going to be as good as it appears when you're testing it on a 3080 at 4K. Uh So from that perspective, I think, yeah, I would agree with Steve saying something like a 3080 is probably better in that price category because you can really use DLSS as a selling point. It it really does make it more of a 4K-capable card. But does DLSS make a 3060 Ti more of a 1440p-capable card? I don't think it's as advantageous Mm. for that sort of product. That's true, and it's important to... Be aware of that, and we 
I have explained that in pretty much all of my GPU reviews recently because Tim and I noticed that trend where in Cyberpunk, for example, almost everyone evaluated the quality of DLSS on like a 3080 at 4K. And then we noticed, you know, when you start using it at 1080p, it's pretty average, like it's noticeably worse. Whereas at 4K, obviously you've got more data to work with to do your Mm. upscaling. So you're going to get a better result. So that, I think that's something that maybe reviewers have to do a better job of when they start evaluating this stuff, looking at DLSS quality in these upcoming games is evaluated across you know, at least two different resolutions, like you know, 1080p is still very popular. So mm-hmm. you get sort of a, a low-end look at DLSS as well as a high-end look, because it is definitely different. Um, Tim's 100% right on that. I, I guess, I don't know, maybe you disagree, but isn't the 3060 Ti, it's kind of a 1440p card in my opinion anyways, though. So I, I guess you could say it's not as full-throated of a, a DLS isn't as great of a feature as it is at 4K, but I don't know, depending on what you play, like if you, like as you say, if you play Fortnite all the time, mm-hmm. that's probably a great option, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, it's still valid there. It's not, again, if you're expecting like as good of image quality or it, yeah. it, it better in some areas as what's shown at 4K, then you may be a little bit disappointed, but it's still... You know, for a game like Fortnite, you're not going to stop and look at the blades of grass and work out whether they're <laughs> yeah, better or true. not. So really all you care about is your input and you know, how high your FPS, and it will definitely be uh, greatly improved even using the quality mode. So it's a feature there, but again, depends on the games you play, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, for, for 1080p, I think it is less of a feature, but it's still a nice feature to have because it is a quick and easy way to get more performance. And again, if you're playing Fortnite, you, you're probably using the performance mode. So you, the last thing you care about is image quality. Yeah. So it comes down to the games, really. Silvanos writes in and says, Monitor Steve and mustache Tim. In your, <laughs> in your recent review of the 6700 XT, you mentioned that in the metrics of bang for the buck, it fares not much better than the 5700 XT and much worse considering the market right now. To what kind of audience would you recommend the 6700 XT at a reasonable price? People with older AMD or Intel processors? Or what would you say a reasonable price for the 6700 XT even is? Um, Well, probably what we were just talking about. So, you know, you wouldn't want to pay realistically much over 430, I think. Um, And then, yeah, I, I think what you were suggesting is probably... The price that because you saying four hundred dollars the same price as the fifty seven hundred XT. I mean that would be ideal. I don't know how. I guess they'd probably do four twenty nine. I have to expect they would have marked it up a little bit more. I, I I think at that price, it's obviously we can just keep dialing down the price, and that would be continually better for us. Yes, but um four thirty I think would be a reasonable price because that positions it very well against the current competition and. It's still a nice upgrade, like a $30 premium over the 5700 XT. That's still a fantastic card, um, the 6700 XT, that is. So I think that's the price you would go for. As for who I recommend it to, um, so I think it was that sort of leaning on the driver overhead question uh, for people with older I think he, I think he'd, um, oh, yeah, probably, yeah. Um, well, definitely if you have an older processor and you, again, are playing games that are quite CPU-intensive, the 6700 XT will be a much better option than the 3060 Ti. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to go using that as a tool to push people towards Radeon GPUs because 
you know, when are you going to upgrade your CPU, for example? So in this instance, the 67RXT would be better value anyway, so you would just get it, and that's a nice perk. But I wouldn't pay a premium for that because mm-hmm. it can be solved with a faster processor and you may be upgrading to a Zen 3 processor in six months' time, at which point paying a premium for the lower driver overhead is no longer a factor. So it, it depends. Roman Perschel writes in and says, Hey guys, what do you think of the NVIDIA unbreakable hash limiter defeated with a $6 US, uh, dummy HDMI plug? <laughs> I was expecting it to be defeated somehow, but for $6, is this a joke? And I just want to throw in, I did a couple of videos on the whole mining thing. Um, actually, I, I doubt you saw them. I, I, I'd like to tell you because right when they announced their new mining lineup, which we now know is a combination of Turing and Ampere dies, um, I said, mm-hmm. this isn't going to help absolutely anything. And these drivers they say they're working on will be defeated almost immediately. I've been mining since 2013. I know miners. I know people who work at mining firms. These people have billions of dollars. These are multi-billion dollar companies. They will write their own drivers and do whatever they want. Like it's not in mm-hmm. there. A lot of them are based in the US or Europe or Australia as well. They can write their own crack drivers and no one's coming at them. No police are arresting them. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and it was, and then, then. I, I did a video saying that before they announced the cards, then they announced them. I said, it won't fix anything. It was just hilarious scene with, honestly, they cracked them faster than I thought they would though. Like <laughs> oh, the whole thing is just the biggest load of marketing BS. Like as soon as that came out, I remember speaking to Stephen L in our chat being like, so what are the, what's the bet on how long it will take for this to be cracked? Like one second. <laughs> is it, are the cards going? Is it going to be cracked before it comes out onto the market? It's yeah, Nvidia. It really seems like they wanted to appear to be for the gamer. Yeah, and the best way to appear for the gamer at the moment is like, hey, we're defeating miners, but it's <laughs> like they can't. So, <laughs> and you're directly selling cards to miners. It was in their financials last quarter. They're literally directly shipping dies to miners who are building the boards themselves and. It's like, so you're not defeating them, guys. And the mining GPUs that they're coming out with, those special mining products, is yeah. like, well, they could have just taken that die and used it for a gaming product, and that would actually be for the gamers. So, yeah, the whole situation, I was just... I think it was disappointing that as many people ate it up as quickly as they did. Did they? As in sort of like... Because you didn't, I, think, I didn't, and I know a lot of... Linus didn't, I know a lot of people didn't. I think I was... Speaking more from like a mainstream audience, okay. like more more of like a The Verge or Engadget or those sort of sites that also cover these GPUs, where it's like, oh hey, this has sort of been, you know, this is fixed. Like mining's fixed. The thirty sixty can't mine, so we're, we're all sorted here. Whereas, I, you know, I really think with all these sort of things, you really need to wait for the actual result of what's going on. And it was very quickly apparent that the result is not what people actually wanted. In that sort of mining situation, didn't really, didn't really change anything, as you said. Yeah, which uh, I don't know. I also think that adds an interesting wrinkle that I don't. Maybe someone has said it. Someone probably has. Where just this token uh, thing they're throwing to game, they're throwing to gamers. This gesture of they're making a thirty, the the single thirty sixty, not able to mine anymore. Really, while they also unveil that I don't know what percentage of their dies are going to be going to miners now with the. Uh, CMP lineup, yeah, I but I at suspect the same time, it's a they lot just of too. <laughs> so yeah, they fraction whatever they're making on Turing, or if they're, I'm not sure if they're, I'm assuming they're still making some Turing. So mm-hmm. they're fractioning their uh, Turing 
dies now and most of their Ampere dies, but I guess one of our cards now doesn't isn't able to mine. And I think anybody that keeps track of miners, even peripherally at all, will know that <laughs> miners there, are going to figure out a way around it. Well, there's an incentive to make money. People will find a way. So that's yeah. why when I saw those gestures, yeah. it was so funny to me. And I think it's worth reiterating, you know, like what you said, Tim, about, you know, these could these dies could have been used for gaming graphics cards. I, I just don't think that can be emphasized enough that this is an imperfect situation. It's There's going to be problems with demand no matter what. But if you really wanted to help gamers, you would just start producing RX 590s from Global Foundries. You would start producing as many cards as you can at TSMC if you're AMD, for example. And then you just make them gaming cards. And yes, miners will buy up a lot of them, but at least they're gaming cards and gamers have a fighting chance to get one and use it to game. Any die they use for a mining yeah. card is not hitting the gamer market, is not going to help with demand. I always yeah. thought that, you know, NVIDIA copped a lot of criticism when they made GeForce Experience require a login to download drivers <sighs> yeah. and use the tool, right? So they've spent all this time collecting data from their users on what people are doing with their with their PCs. Oh, people yeah. are logging in, it scans games, you can use it for shadow play. They're collecting telemetry on all this. And they're telling me that the best solution for getting GPUs into gamers' hands is just to block mining on the on the cards. What about using this entire system that they've built for the past however many years now with their logins and making it so that actual gamers that they know are gaming on their PCs based on GeForce experience have a priority position to order these products. Yeah. Uh, that would have made so much more sense than just going, hey, we're fixed it now, we're, we're blocking blo blocking mining, uh, we've got new mining GPUs. No, no, no. Got GeForce experience. If I have to log in and do that annoying capture thing every single time, <laughs> make it so I could, there's a new tab, buy a GPU, I click on there, it's like, Hey, you've gamed on your GPU for a thousand hours in the last year. Here, here you go. Here's our here's our exclusive store or something like that. That would have worked out a lot better. But I'm not quite sure whether Nvidia actually has an incentive or mm -hmm. really wants to sell these GPUs to gamers. They could I mean, have even called that the GeForce Experience. I know <laughs> it's right there. I, I that at the end of the day, though, they're making money and they're making yep. cards as fast as they can so yeah it's all they care about who, who cares well from their perspective who cares not from our perspective obviously <laughs> before we get that comment <laughs> gosh reesey why does windows 10 professional have to be so expensive Don't listen to that, nerd. Listen to me. You can get all the great windows and gaming keys you need at CDK Offers. I have a plan. Go to cdkoffers.com to get all the Windows Professional and Microsoft Office keys you need, and games as well. Add them to your cart, and you can even apply one of them city slicker promotional codes like Dashrink for 3% off software and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. I do have an account on this website, and it is ultra easy to use. Just submit your order, use PayPal, credit card, or Bitcoin, and go to Windows website to download Microsoft Professional. 
One more time, that's go to cdkoffers.com. They are a fantastic sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead. Use offer code DOSHRINK for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows products. Now, back to the show. DJ5K-Writes in and says, do you expect the next GPU generation, RTX 4000, RX 7000 presumably, to be launched according to purported schedule this year with a former release and whatever availability? Well, we don't have any official communication yet. I feel it was always a stretch for the next gen to release in 2021. With the current demand and shortage situation, I think late 2022 is a much more likely that both AMD and NVIDIA would internally move those release dates back several months. So I guess the general question is, when do you think the next generation will be launched? And do you think the current demand is affected when they will release them? Um, well, I'm not exactly sure when they, you know, when they were set to be released. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think the current demand or anything like that will have any influence on when they release it. It'll be the only things that would delay it are things that are outside of their control, like actual delays. It mm -hmm. won't be, oh, you know, people are having trouble buying the cards. Let's just not release them for a while because there's so many other mm -hmm. factors to play. Obviously, they've spent millions, billions potentially developing you know, new architectures and stuff like that, so they've got to start recouping those funds. As Tim mentioned when we spoke about this recently, they've also paid for wafer allocation. They can't yes. just be like, yeah. oh, TSMC, can you just hit the pause button for a minute on production? We'll pick them up but later. Hold our spot in so, line, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, the train's leaving the station on that one, so it's it's got to happen. So the only thing that would delay it till next year is some sort of production delay, let's say. It wouldn't be you know, anything to do with supply or demand or whatever it may be. And you'd need both companies to delay their products because if one company delays their products and the other company goes full steam ahead, you're suddenly <laughs> in this situation where you've got, say, NVIDIA has got new-gen products, AMD's on last-gen stuff, so... They're competing against the wrong product line. One company's got a big advantage. And if one company's taking a big advantage, they're not just going to sit back and be like, no, 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 we're delaying our stuff. So in that, in that situation where both companies need to cooperate, it's just never going to be something that can actually happen. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I mean, I think from what I understand, just to directly answer a question that person probably wants to know is, I think RDNA 3 is probably mid 2022 if i dig based on what we're seeing in the development pipeline for because like v bioses will come out for test cards like about a year before it launches mm -hmm. they have not yet uh, to my knowledge so like um or if they have they've just come out and the only and i don't know about what's going on with an nvidia they're usually more closed off but the only thing i could see nvidia really doing that surprises us is maybe like an ampere refresh with maybe better efficiency, more VRAM capacities. I really, and this is no source telling me this. This is just me speaking for myself. Like, I really think it would behoove NVIDIA to do an Ampere refresh if they think they could squeeze another 20% out and give it more RAM at the end of this year. And that'd probably be right about when demand catches up with supply, too. Mm -hmm. Well, let me see here then. So I think DJ5K has a good question, though, is with the heavy impact on CPU, Oh, yeah. Will the NVIDIA driver issue impact how you test CPUs? When mm. not testing the latest and fastest CPUs, as you thankfully often do, there might be some relevant performance deltas when testing with a, like a 6900 XT versus a 3090. You think this disqualifies the RTX 30 series as a GPU for CPUs, test benches, and if not, 
Why not? And thank you for your amazing work. Okay, so from testing, let's first talk about GPUs, so graphics card benchmarks. I think the way I'll tackle them from now on, and we're talking mid-range to low-end, so Mm -hmm. forget the high-end flagship cards. For the more affordable cards, I think the way I will do it now, so this would be the cards coming up, like think 30, 50, if that's a thing, um, I would test. The review would be, as always, so flagship CPU to remove the CPU bottleneck, and it would be purely GPU performance without any kind of system limitations. Mm-hmm. Then I would do a more realistic review following up, ideally days later, if not a week later, where I test with something much more low-end, um, maybe a Ryzen 5 2600 or some, something that was a popular value CPU in the last few years. So let's say the Ryzen 5 2600 now, and I would just rerun all the benchmarks. Uh, with probably a more tight grouping of graphics cards. I wouldn't do the usual 20 graphics cards stack, let's say six mm-hmm. relevant GPUs uh, that this what this new product compares with, and then see how much the margins change. Because based on the testing I've just done, it looks like, like say for a 5600 XT versus the RTX 2060, performance is about the same on a flagship GPU, but then using a lower-end GPU, it's like the 5600 XT comes out being like 10 15% faster, which is quite a significant difference. And if, you're, if you've got one of these more low-end, mid-range CPUs, then that could make that a more appealing choice. So for the GPUs, yeah, that's how I will handle that, a, a, a second review. And then as I think the second part of that question was for testing CPUs, mm-hmm. testing gaming performances. I've thought about that a bit. I don't really know the answer. Like, I think using a GeForce GPU probably still makes sense for a couple of reasons. One being that they are very popular still and Mm. they're the most dominant uh, option. And it's kind of a better test, (laughs) if you know what I mean, because you'd rather really test the CPU. So, and you can kind of need that stronger CPU. So you could almost argue you should use a 3090 for that reason. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, if it passes with a 3090, it's going to pass with a Radeon GPU. Whereas if I use a Radeon GPU and I say, oh, you know, the Ryzen 5 1600 plays all the latest games just fine, but then people are like, well, I'm getting stuttering. Why weren't you? And so, <laughs> hmm. uh, obviously, obviously, the best answer is the ideal answer is, oh, I'll go and test with both. Yeah. You know? Why not, Steve? Doing, just do 50 yeah. graphics cards, 50 <laughs> CPUs. And you know what? I noticed you did this a month ago. Could you do this every two weeks instead of every month? Just, I mean, come on. I mean, you're getting lazy. I understand. Yeah. I don't need to see my kids anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's move on a little bit to the CPU side of things here then. So I guess uh, this will come out most likely on the 30th um, of March. <laughs> I believe that's about when Rocket Lake launches. I mean, I don't believe you've done a bunch of testing with it yet, uh, but I I don't know if you saw Gamers Nexus just put out a Rocket Lake review early. Mm -hmm. So I don't Mm -hmm. know if you want to talk about Rocket Lake at all, whether it's expectations or not, if you're saving that for a video. But like, what what do you want to say or can say about Rocket Lake at this stage? And again, with the mindset that this should launch about at the same time, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, we... I think Tim and I spoke for about an hour. So this is the different kind of content we were doing. We we decided mm-hmm. to review Ian's review, Ian Cutchers from Anantec. So he did a review, <laughs> I think, what was it, about two or three weeks ago now, mm-hmm. something like yep. that. 
Um, and so we discussed his results. It looks like performance has improved in some areas a little bit since then, but nothing drastically. And yeah, it looks like it's kind of in a lot of ways more of the same, bit more power, sometimes a little bit more performance, sometimes a little bit less. It's not really a meaningful difference. Um, but yeah, I don't have too much to say about it really. Um, I'm keen to do our own testing, our own batch of games and see where it lands, but it's not looking like it's going to shape up to be anything earth-shattering. Um, and I think, as Tim put it in one of his videos, like the 11900K in particular looks like being absolutely woeful value. The 11700K is pretty mm, average. And then I think like the 11600K and like the 11400F, God, these names are terrible, um, they'll probably be okay. So it's sort of like the mid-range offerings might be decent. Might um, somewhat be competitive with like the 5600X or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but then if AMD... But yeah, in the so, high end, it's like, you know, I, I don't even, do you expect them to take the gaming performance crown? Because I'm not really seeing that happening. I, it kind of just seems like a draw or slight loss even. But of course, there could be a, you know, microcode update or something at the last minute that gives them a few more percent. But I, I ever since the Vega review, I advise people to not hope for a last minute driver secret sauce <laughs> boost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole gaming crown thing for CPUs is kind of, I don't know what the word you would use for it. It's just, it's, it's so silly and pointless because even with Zen 2, we saw that for the most part, like we're talking 1080p resolution. Yeah, we're using high to ultra quality settings, but we're using like RTX 2080 Ti, which was the flagship GPU at the time. And on average, it was like the 9900K was 5% faster. So everyone was like, yep, that's it. Zen 2 is trash for gaming. If you want a fast gaming system, you must have a 9900K. And that's like some people acted you, like that. I swear to God. Well, a lot of them did, but then you play at fourteen forty p with like even medium to high, and it's like, oh, hang on, is the performance is exactly the same, or it's a one to two percent? So you know, with eleventh gen and Zen three, they're so close in performance that it's just not even worth having the discussion about. Where you'll see a meaningful difference in FPS, you're talking about like three hundred versus three hundred and thirty. So while 30 <laughs> FPS on the graph may look, oh, look, the, the, you know, that's quite significant, 30 more FPS, but no, it's not. That sounds so like that, the that's talk sort of my of take a 300 on it. hertz peasant while I'm up here in my <laughs> 330 hertz castle looking down on you. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's my take on the whole gaming thing now. It's more about who offers, you know, if, at least in my opinion, more value at those lower price points. Um, whether I, I couldn't care less whether 11900K beats the, Ryzen 9 5900X by a percent or vice versa. It's like, yep, they're the same. Move on. Boring. Like, changes nothing. So if I can ask both of you guys this, then uh, QH Freddy writes in and says, what upcoming product or technology are you most excited about reviewing and why? Are there any products you want to start reviewing that you haven't been able to review already or maybe a new aspect of a product uh, that you already cover? For Steve specifically, how is the new studio space going to be put to use? I guess there's a few questions there. Okay. Well, I'll, the studio space will be put to use with just a lot of benchmarking, a lot of testing, more sets, um, sort of like a building modding type set, and just be able to do a lot more content a lot easily. Like, for example, oh, and, and chatting with people like yourself, you and Dan, I'll be able to do that more easily. I won't have to do a makeshift right, thing. I'll in write you shed. down for being available <laughs> every month. <then. laughs> sure, sure. Um, but no, I will have a, it'll be a lot easier to just switch on the camera and have a chat with someone rather than have to like 
yeah. you know, hodgepodge things together, which takes hours to get working flawlessly. So that'll be good. Um, as for what I'm looking forward to, honestly, I don't have an answer for you there. There's like 12th gen and Zen 4. <laughs> um, yeah, with, with the way things are at the moment, I'm not that excited about the prospect of new products. And that's a bit depressing and a bit, you know, normally I'm like hanging out for the next thing. But yeah, I'm not... I'm not super excited for anything at the moment. I mean, obviously, always next-gen GPUs that are you know, truly next-gen GPUs, next-gen CPUs, that's always exciting. But there's nothing in particular that I'm really hanging out for, not like I was for like you know, Zen 3 and Amp here towards the end of last year, for example. Well, you, may, you mentioned 12th gen. I mean, are you, are, do you have expectations at all for like <laughs> Intel's Alder Lake that's coming out at the end of this year? I mean, this is something I've been covering you know, for years. And I, I personally, I'll just speak for myself, I really do think Alder Lake could surprise people. I think they could retake uh-huh. the gaming crown by more than 5%. Um, <laughs> and I think they'll bring it in at the same price points they have now, which sounds bad, but it's like, well, yeah, but they won't be going from 10 cores to 8 cores at the same price. <laughs> they'll be going from like 8 cores to 24 cores, Well, depending on how you think of a core, I suppose. Uh, but uh-huh. like, does that excite you, though, to see that happen maybe at the end of this year? It de- yeah, it definitely does excite me. Again, not quite the same as how I've been excited for those sort of products in the past because I guess if we see the market recover a bit towards the end of the year, then that'll be a bit more exciting. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's like a, it, it's, a t- it's, it's difficult to explain because yes, I'm always excited for new CPUs and new GPUs, especially when they're not just refreshes. So yeah, I am excited for it, but at the same time, not as excited as I would be otherwise. I don't know it's a, it's a difficult one to explain, but you, you kind of get what I mean. You don't want to get it's excited because like, you know that there's a chance we might just still be stuck in this current state, anyways. Yeah, like Zen three, I was super excited for that, and as I, I mentioned earlier, it exceeded my expectations. But at the same time, I've also been sort of overall disappointed with with it because the 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 parts that were, in my opinion, what you'd actually want to buy, like the Ryzen nine parts, because the Ryzen seven fifty eight hundred X is it's not great mm-hmm. value. The 5600X, um, it's like probably just buy a 3600 at this point. Um, so it's really the 12 and the 16 core part that's you know, really interesting for you know people who are doing like stuff like us, like content creation yeah. or they're, they're gaming and streaming. But those CPUs weren't really available. So it's like the only CPUs that are truly new or interesting aren't available. And then the ones that are available are terrible value. So... <laughs> While an impressive step forward and did exceed my expectations for stuff like gaming performance, it's, it's again hard to get excited about. So, you know, people have asked us, "Why haven't you done this Zen three coverage? And why haven't you done, you know, followed up on that? Why haven't you done undervolting and this and that?" And it's like I just, I'm not super motivated to look into it because for me, what makes these series exciting just hasn't happened yet. Well, so, more, so more of your, <laughs> you're looking for the market to change more than anything than any actual product. That's the release. Enthusiasm will be renewed. I, I think <laughs> that's people I think getting that's, them. Yeah, I think that's probably true for everybody, to be honest. Yeah, but yeah, that's certainly the case for me. Because yeah, as I said earlier, what makes this job exciting for me is when people get excited about the products and then all the testing we put into those products. And if that excitement isn't there from viewers, then yeah, it's just. It's hard to get motivated to do nothing but benchmark day in, day out for a week or so. I'd rather just talk crap with Tim on a live stream or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of Tim, I'm going to move on to a little bit of monitor talk here, a little closer to the end. Um, Let me see. So Sam, so actually, let me, let me actually ask this before I get to a reader mail. So 
I remember us talking about the state of monitors, Tim, you know, a year ago and like OLED. I've had my OLED TV now for two years. I mean, heck, my, my current game, my studio laptop has a 4K OLED display. This actually wasn't a very expensive one. I got it for 1500 or no, 1400 Um, And so it seems like you're getting OLED in quite a few places, but are you at all surprised we don't at least see OLED gaming desktop monitors on the horizon? Because I'm going to be honest, I've, I used to make predictions about when I think they'll be available, and I'm done. I'm done predicting it because I'm not really sure anymore. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not super surprised. Um, I think I'd be more surprised if there was even one option that people sort of had, and then because I guess if there was one OLED monitor that people were like, "This is the one that's really good," then you'd say, "Oh, well, in a couple of years, you'd hope for maybe a couple more options in different form factors." But we don't even have one. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when you sort of look at the the panel manufacturers making OLEDs, um, you know, LG, th- there's actually many of them, mm-hmm. but they all sort of focus on different things. So everyone's like, oh, well, LG makes the best OLED TVs. They've got sizes from 77 inches plus down to 48, and they're going to have a 42-inch. Mm-hmm. But they just don't care about the lower-end market. Mm-hmm. So their only focus are on TV technologies because TVs are high-margin products. There's not a race to compete with all your other brands like your Samsung, like BOE, like all those all those companies. They basically have a monopoly in TV. So they just don't have the incentive to make a ton of great quality gaming monitor products, which probably wouldn't sell that much as well because you're talking about $1,000 type monitors. So when they're sort of leading the pack, it's disappointing. It's definitely mm. disappointing that we don't have it, but I'm not super surprised that there hasn't been a focus there. I think it would really happen if one of the other brands comes to the table with technology that is as good or at least starts having the high refresh rate stuff and maybe that is one of the laptop panel manufacturers making the panels bigger. I'm not really sure, but, yeah, I'm not I'm not super surprised, to be honest. Yeah, and... Are you willing at all to make a prediction on when they'll be <laughs> able to be bought? Um, I think it's a situation where it definitely will happen in mm-hmm. a number of years. I, w- I wouldn't say this year, for example, but for me, it, it looks like LG is sort of testing the waters a bit. They've got the 48-inch. That was a success, which I think is why they would be introducing a 42-inch. Yeah. And then the next step that would really make a monitor work is 32-inch. Yeah. Um, which, again, if we're sort of talking this year they've got 42, then maybe they might consider a smaller panel for a future year. But until that happens, I really can't see it outside of uh, like your studio you know, professional type monitors because LG does have a 32-inch 4K 60 hertz OLED for professional use, but I believe the price tag is like four thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. So that well, probably and Asus tells has you a little a 20 bit inch, about, yeah. Asus has a 20-inch portable OLED monitor for only five grand. If you want that too, Tim. Yeah, so I think that sort of shows you a little bit of, unless that price is like a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred, even two thousand dollars, it just won't sell in a gaming market at all. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. They're obviously burning. I don't think is too much of a concern, especially with the LG panels. Not sure how it would go with the, the other brands, which use different sort of pixel layouts and that sort of thing. So, yeah, there's still a lot of concerns. That I hope they get it out, though. I really do because it would yeah, really I mean, shake things up. 
I've never had burn-in on my TV yet, and I've actually kind of made a point of in the background of my videos for the past two years, putting like some graphics card I'm talking about or something on that TV behind me, a static image, although, you know, of course goes to screensaver within like 30 seconds half the time. But I don't know, I've been very lax, kind of on purpose with my OLED products, just because I feel like I've kind of hyped them up a lot. And so I want to be the first to get burn-in before anyone in my channel does. And I guess what I'm saying is for me, I I, I just haven't seen burn-in yet. I, I feel like if you're like doing Excel work for eight hours a day, it's probably not the right product. But I think for gamers, it's more than ready. Just no one's making the monitor. Yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely ready for gaming. I think the issue would be stuff like taskbar burn-in. Sure. Um, which... Yeah. Again, it's kind of a bit early to, to say because you wouldn't normally expect that to happen for two to three years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have an OLED panel as well, a TV. I watch a lot of sports broadcasts, which have obviously yeah. you know the, the logos in the in the corners. I don't, I haven't seen any burn in at all on my my TV yet, and I've had it for a couple of years now. So, but then again, in five years it might be different. And it, I, I guess if you're spending five thousand dollars on a monitor, you wouldn't want it to burn in in even three, four, five years because you've just spent the most insane amount of money imaginable. So, um, yeah, I guess it would also be up to the companies to prove that there's you know, no burn and get the confidence of people to to adopt that technology. So, yeah, lots of questions. Speaking of questions, Sam Vensel has one. He says, Tim, monitor shopping is the worst. I really get the impression that monitor makers just don't have any idea what people actually want. Who is buying monitors for RGB, cheating crosshairs, and ridiculous refresh rates most of us can't run anyways? Why all the dishonesty on the spec sheet, especially in regard to HDR? Where are the affordable display HDR 1000 IPS 144Hz monitors with free sync and good response times? Oh, oh boy. Coming in hot, yeah. So I'll answer the last part first. Where are the display HDR 1000 monitors? Again, not a lot of competition from the panel manufacturers. AU Optronics made m- most of the original wave of these panels. But right now, I think tw- late 2020, early 2021, we've seen other brands like LG and BOE step up with alternatives that do HDR to some non-fake level. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> if there's competition, competition will drive more products on the market. So I guess AU Optronics was kind of first. They kind of dabbled in a few things. They're very expensive to produce, so... I would expect that that sort of thing will be happening more this year and in the next couple of years, which is which is good. Certainly, we'll see 32-inch panels doing exactly what you want there this year, and perhaps a 27-inch refresh as well. The dishonesty on spec sheets, this really pisses me off. This okay. Re- I, I, and I have no dog the in this fight. These are just my yeah, some people's questions. It. I didn't say it. I just read it. It's It's just your standard race to the bottom. Like, if a, if a one brand says they're monitor can do hdr when it can't do hdr then the brand that doesn't put hdr on it is at a yes. disadvantage yeah. because one company is basically they're not i wouldn't say they're lying because they can accept hdr inputs which seems to be like the absolute minimum of putting hdr on the box but yeah it's just your standard marketing stuff one brand does one thing the other brand doesn't do it that brand's not going to sell same thing with like one millisecond response times some I bet everyone was testing these things fairly at one point, and then one mm-hmm. brand was like, hmm, but what if we only report the metric of the, the fastest response time we measure, not an average? So then all brands uh. start doing that. And then another company would be, well, we're already reporting the lowest response time. What if instead of measuring the t- 
total response time, we just measure half of the response. So then <laughs> we can increase it even, even further. So yeah, instead of measuring like 100% of response, you might do 80% or 60% or zero to 80. Um, and every brand has a different way of, of measuring that. So it's just BS. It's like that it's totally worthless, the things that are said on those spec sheets. Um, which makes it really difficult. Oh, great for me as a reviewer. I can go and highlight all the actual real things about the performance, but I, I don't really see a solution for that a- apart from like, you know, a, a new display HDR brand or something that mm. could distinguish, which used to be G-Sync Ultimate until NVIDIA decided to nerf it. So, yeah, we need something to replace that, I think. I guess the only other thing that could is a, I don't know, like verify body that actually does that but there's i guess yeah i guess that's unofficially you so well even with like vaser with display hdr they come up with this display hdr will certify displays to show hdr content which mm-hmm. sounds good vaser is a, a known company that has a reputation and then they're like we'll have some reasonable tiers like display HDR 1000. So Mm -hmm. to get that, you actually kind of do need to make HDR, Mm -hmm. but then also we'll introduce this other tier in display HDR, which doesn't give you any HDR functionality at all, but will still allow people to pay us for certification and allow you to put the stickers on the box. So again, it kind of like you see one step in the right direction and then they screw it up by more marketing BS. Again, like NVIDIA saying, oh, G-Sync Ultimate, that was actually a a really good step forward for people buying monitors. And then later they're like, yeah, but we could kind of dilute this massively and make more money. So <laughs> we yeah, think we'll have some really of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, an example, actually, it, it's not the same uh, topic, but I kn- I was told that TSMC got in a lot of, had a lot of headaches because they called their node 16 nanometer and uh, Global Foundries and Samsung called theirs 14 nanometer effectively same density and mm. uh, apparently people told me who worked at tsmc that in meetings they would constantly be asked so is yours faster despite not being as dense and <laughs> tsmc would say no we are we just are lying less than them <laughs> and we just thought this really yeah, should be called so 16 as well and so that's why they've insisted on going you know what it's seven nanometer and the next one even though it's just like a slight uptick is going to be called six and then we're going to call the next one five. We don't, we're, we're done. We just need to make sure we advertise the smallest number. Yeah. Yeah. That the whole, I remember studying all that stuff in electrical engineering at university and the actual like true sizes of the gates and stuff are nowhere near the numbers that are being advertised. Oh God, no. Like, That's it, why it's I not even, laugh. it's not even close. So people always say like, oh, but isn't seven and five nanometer getting pretty close to the size of an atom? And it's like, yeah, they are, except that number is nowhere near right, so it doesn't really matter. Um, Kenhun25 writes in and says, Hi, Tom, Dan, Tim, and Steve. Thanks, Steve, for your depth in the breakdown on the AIB 6800 XT models. It helped me decide on the Red Devil version. I'm looking to upgrade, though, to a high-refresh 4K monitor, and this is where my question directs to Tim. With the upcoming releases of the 32-inch high-refresh 4K monitors coming out from Asus, ViewSonic, and LG... Is it worth waiting for these monitors to release and spend 1100 plus, or to just get a 27-inch version that have dropped significantly in price in the last few days? Is 32-inch and HDR600 really worth it? And then, you know, I'll actually chime in before you answer and say I have a Concept D 4K 120 hertz monitor. I, you know, it, it had 
pretty good color accuracy. And so that was important for some of the work I do. Uh, but I paid like 900 like a year and a half ago, and it's already 600. I have to say that that's, I think this is a very good question when I'm very happy with this monitor. It only has HDR 400, but do you, do you think it's worth buying the newest stuff, Tim? That's probably double the price. Um, I guess the basic answer to this is probably it's not worth waiting. But again, it's a complicated question because if you're someone like Steve who wants a 32-inch monitor specifically, then the current 27-inch offerings, they don't do anything. They're just not worth buying because it's not the size that, that Steve wants. So I would expect them to be, the 32-inch models to be significantly more expensive. Like, as you say, I think you flag double the price. That sounds pretty accurate to me considering you can get even like a really good high-quality like LG 27G950 I think is $800 or $700 around that mark. Mm-hmm. I would expect like $1,500 for a 32-inch version. So if you're talking about that, to go from a panel size to slightly bigger, definitely not worth it. So kind of just from that perspective alone, um, buying now would make a lot of sense. But Again, if you're interested in some of those options may have better HDR functionality. The current panels have woefully inadequate local dimming zones. Even no. HDR 600 has, Mine like has eight none. zones. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the 27GN950 has maybe eight or 12, but does it matter? That number doesn't have an extra digit say. on it, so it doesn't matter. It's just worthless. So, yeah, that's kind of the answer to that one. It, it's probably not worth waiting unless you specifically want the 32-inch size. I wouldn't expect the 32-inch models to be, for example, have higher refresh rates, have better colors, have better response times. I think most of what you're paying for is just going to be the size. So, yeah. It's such a personal thing, though, and I'm always happy to spend a lot of money on the monitor because you keep it for so long. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like the, those, the Dell 30-inch monitor, I think I spent – two and a half thousand dollars on that 15 years ago or whatever and i still have it to this day it still works um but for me personally like i can weigh in on this one because i'm actually in the middle of this myself Mm -hmm. right now talking to you guys i'm looking at a 27 inch acer predator so Mm -hmm. 4k 144 hertz i have that screen it's awesome but it's not great for what i do like you know adobe premiere yeah isn't great on it everything's very small 27 inches, but then I have a 32, I believe it is, inch uh, ViewSonic panel that Tim reviewed quite a long time ago. It's 4K, but only 60 hertz. So I use that for work. And I just want the one monitor that can do yeah. both. And just looking at it and using it, the 32 inch for me is just so much better than the 27. The 27 is just, I know it sounds ridiculous because 27 inch monitors for most people are still considered quite large. But for me, the 32 is the sweet spot. And going down to the 27, it just, yeah, it's too small. I don't like it. So I would rather spend twice as much to get something that I much prefer that isn't a compromise because I'm going to keep it for like many, many, many years. So, Well, and I think it depends how much you're spending too, right? I mean, once you get it, if you're in like the $200 versus $400 range, it's like money's probably tight. You know, this is probably (laughs) going to be compromises either way. But the second you get over $1,000, it's like, hey, man, I mean, clearly you're just trying to buy exactly what you want. You might want to make sure you buy exactly what you want once you get over $1,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's yeah. like if you keep it for five, six, seven, eight years, it ends up being like less than, in this instance, maybe less than $100 a year if, if, you, if you sort of look at it that way over the, over the life of the product. So, But anyway, I wouldn't compromise on the monitor. I'd get exactly what you want because you have to look at it. Every time you use your computer, 
And for me, I'd just be like, God, I wish I had a Voyager and got that 32-inch version. But that's me personally. It's it's a very much a personal preference thing. Well, Dan, you know, you have a you tell them a monitor you bought and spent <laughs> way more than you could afford when you were in college, but or no. I, I was actually a senior in high school when I bought it. I bought yeah. a <laughs> I bought the uh first like I think it was like the first Samsung uh 4K monitors, uh 4K sixty. Yeah, 4K 60 monitors, and it was I got some shipped some Korean version of it uh, for six hundred dollars, and yeah, I've, I'm still sticking with it. I'm actually now looking to get into it because it's starting to show its age a little bit, especially now that I want to be able to like actually game over sixty hertz, which I'm still gaming at sixty hertz oh, right now. What a peasant! Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but no, I, I do think you are you have a really great point with monitors that. I feel like people kind of almost think of monitors as an afterthought a lot of the time, and they only care about upgrading the components in their PC when what you're looking at is the monitor, and some people are like, well, that's intact on $200 to my PC's budget or whatever. And there are some really nice 4K monitors now that they're a bit expensive for me right now because I don't make a ton of money uh, as a grad student. But uh, I think you're right. It, it still might even for me be worth spending something like eight hundred dollars on a thing I'm probably going to have for at least seven years. <laughs> well, and we we pay Dan enough to afford food now, but we will not allow him <laughs> to turn on the energy every day until we hit the next Patreon goal. So you guys better subscribe, all right? Or Dan's uh, <laughs> not getting energy I need tomorrow. <laughs> I need to turn on air conditioning soon. It's going to get hot. Well, then, Dan, you need to start peddling the Patreon more if you want <laughs> to not overheat. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you, make a, you do make a great point about buying a, a monitor that makes sense because we see that a lot with people ha- who tell us, like, oh, I've got a, a, you know, I bought an RTX 3080, but I'm still yes. using my 1080p 60 hertz display. And it's like, hmm. If you had spent that money instead and you know kept your old GPU, which was probably okay, and upgraded to a 1440p 144s monitor, you probably would actually have a much better experience overall. And this is where I think HDR, when we get actual HDR, things are going to really come into play. It's like if you already have something like a 3080 and you're planning on upgrading and buy, spending another $700, $800 on a GPU, or the alternative was replacing what monitor you had with an actual $800 HDR monitor, Mm-hmm. It's effectively giving you an extra graphics tier in terms of quality. So if your GPU was currently only good for medium quality settings and you were going to upgrade to, say, do the latest things in Ultra, well, you could also just upgrade to HDR and almost get like an Ultra experience. Because I mean, it's a bit different because it's not yeah, in-game yeah. visuals, but the visual improvement is probably in the line of upgrading quality setting tiers in games, if not greater than that. Oh, yeah. So... Yeah, I've, I think monitors are really important parts of the build that really shouldn't be overlooked. Maybe I'm biased because I'm a monitor reviewer, and I, but I use good quality monitors and it's really noticeable. I'll just quickly jump in. As I say, it's not just that as well. Like, again, you buy the monitor and you keep it for a long time. So I think a lot of people go into it with like a GPU purchase mentality where it's like you mm. buy an RTX 3080 today. So, and I, I always like it when someone does the reverse thing. They're like, oh, I'm going to buy an RTX 3080 because I want it to last six years. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah. that doesn't work either because you're better off buying like a 3060 Ti and then another 3060 Ti equivalent in two years' time because you'll always have, that'll be better than your 3080. So 
it, it doesn't work like that. But with a monitor, you buy a good quality monitor, and eight years down the track, it's like, oh, I've still got a good quality monitor. Like, it's unlikely if you bought, especially now, if you bought a 4K 144 hertz monitor with good image quality, it's like, when are you really going to need to upgrade that? How far down the track is it going to be? And that's what I found with my Dell. Uh, it was 2560 by 1600, so the 1610. Yeah. And I had that for like, it was 2,500 Australian. I had it for like, I think I used it for 10 years, maybe a little over 10 years. <laughs> I mean, why not? So, I, I know a lot of people who bought that that particular panel a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And to this day, you, mm-hmm. I think it'd still be fine to this day. I mean. For, for work, it's still like, there's not much. You'd only upgrade if you wanted like the 4K real estate or for gaming, the higher refresh rate. But the point is, I think, yeah, people apply GPU purchasing mentality to monitor mm-hmm. purchases where it's mm-hmm. completely different. They don't just start getting slower, <laughs> not working very well, you know, three years down the track. But anyway, probably enough on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I oh, do. Oh, sorry. Actually, Dan wanted to say something when I interrupted. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I mean, I was just going to quickly uh, go back to Tim's point and say that uh, I, I especially think you're, when you're talking about an upgrade in like a, from like high to ultra, you're getting an equivalent performance upgrade. Uh, I mean, not performance, but visual upgrade if you get an mm-hmm. HDR monitor. I, I also think it's e- even more true given that most games high to ultra is virtually on an, you vir- virtually can't tell the difference while a you're actually playing the game in most yeah. games. And I don't know, the uh, seeing HDR monitors, there's definitely a massive increase in visual quality, just adding HDR and not increasing performance at all. Well, yeah, especially with yep. with my OLED TV, Dan. I know you um, were here over the holidays, and I was playing the new Demon Souls on it in HDR. And there's like this huge boss with fire everywhere. And I remember you, Dan, were like, "Is that how that normally looks?" Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it look looks it looks quite a bit better actually if you have good HDR. Yeah. Oh, HDR. The difference between low and ultra settings in a lot of games is not the same as the difference from like ultra to hdr mm-hmm. like that, yeah. that upgrade would be larger yeah of course it does depend on the games uh but yeah i think once people and it's one of those things you can't describe if you've never seen no. it before you can't describe it like you can say it's brighter it has better contrast it looks better but you can't show it on on an sdr screen so you always see those you know the, like those bs marketing ads where they like <laughs> make the old monitor look awful and then the new thing look this like normal the same uh yeah or the same um they're yeah, really funny on the eBay monitors. I love how they portray them in the yeah. descriptions. Usually there's like a, for some reason I've noticed, eBay mo- knockoff monitors always use either God of War Kratos, the Smurfs <laughs> movie, or the Eiffel Tower picture. Like for some reason that's just always there in the description of like, and then they're always coming out of the TV at you. And it's like, this is what HDR looks like. It's, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. look like that. It just looks, <laughs> it's hard to describe, and I don't think that's how I would do it. Um, so I do have a few fun reader mails here at the very end to kind of wrap things up with. Um, Trogdor writes in and says, hi, Steve and Tim, big fan, Patreon of you and Tom's, and I guess I'll mention Dan here somewhere too. It's interesting slight. I'm especially a fan <laughs> of your unbiased empirical work, focusing on the raw data itself. My question to you is, what is your opinion on the lines that seem to be blurring between traditional reviewers and, I guess in parentheses, influencers? 
Some might say all tech reviewers are influencers, but I see a big difference between Steve's 30-game mega benchmarks and a Minecraft YouTuber making a sponsored video about, wow, RTX is so pretty, you should buy a 3090 to play an 8K like me. A lot of review samples going to YouTubers like that and Twitch streamers seem, it seems that many companies would rather see a certain editorial direction, like with NVIDIA attempting to strong-arm you some time ago. How do you stay unbiased and focused on the data in an ever-growing sea of influencers pumping out sponsored content that get preferential treatment? Yeah, I okay, guess well, I'll, <coughs> I'm interested to hear your thoughts as well on this, Steve, while you take a giant sip of your olive oil. Uh, yeah. Um, I guess part of it is I think there's so many different angles to talk. We could talk about this question for like 20 minutes. <laughs> it could probably so be hang on. its own I was, was going to say, so are we doing this to end? Like, was, <laughs> is that how you led into this? Or are we continuing this for another three hours? Oh, uh, we can go on as long as you guys want. But, it, I mean, this is – hey, look, if this is how – I'm going to wrap it up whenever I, I think it's probably good, to be honest. But, I mean, if you have a lot to say about this, then that means it's going to be better content than something you skip through, I think. So say as much as you want. Yeah, so I think when it comes to staying unbiased and, and the difference between that and, like, your influences, I think most people that are actually interested in buying a product and doing research can pretty easily distinguish between those two things. So I don't really see us like competing in with like a Twitch streamer who's playing Minecraft using you know Minecraft RTX or mm-hmm. whatever or or playing on 8K. It's kind of a very different piece of content. So yeah, I, I guess that that's part of it. Then you know how do we stay unbiased and and stop you know, getting sucked into sponsored content and that sort of thing. It's just about getting your your business and channel into a position where it's not about money anymore. So, you know, for us, for Steve and I, we don't need to spend $300,000 on a new Lamborghini or whatever. So <laughs> if we don't, well, Steve might be a little bit upset that he can't buy his Everyone has different definitions of need. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so in in the position that we're in and many other reviewers are in, especially on YouTube where it's much easier to be you know, independent, to make a living, to diversify your income across many different you know, platforms, not just AdSense, but Patreon and places like that, obviously are massive for us. And once you're in that position, it, it just kind of becomes, I don't need that sponsorship money. Like it, mm-hmm. it doesn't, it's not going to improve my life. It's not going to make my job easier. It's in fact going to make my job worse and harder because you know, how do I sell an 8K gaming video to my audience when I've told people that we don't take any money from NVIDIA, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that worth the tens of thousands of dollars that they'd pay me? No. But obviously if I was earning a, a very low amount per year, then that becomes more of a, of a consideration. So I think that's really – we're very lucky to be in that position where, yeah, it's not really about money anymore, which allows us to really pick and choose the companies that we deal with for things like ads where there might be that – that crossover between you know being an influencer or an unbiased reviewer, so I think that helps a lot. And obviously, Patreon as well um, allows us to buy stuff when Steve gets blacklisted from ASRock. I think you've just bought some Z five ninety motherboards, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that that really helps us out a lot. What did you do to ASRock, Steve? Um, gee, <laughs> <laughs> where do we start? No, uh, I, I, I honestly. Rev- well, I honestly reviewed or tested the VR and thermal performance of their Z490 motherboards. Mm-hmm. I, well, I kind of 
pointed out that they were misleading in their marketing because they were claiming that the phantom gaming model was, what was the terminology, something like um, unrivaled overclocking potential or something like that. Anyway, it couldn't even run the 10900K stock without <laughs> without throttling the CPU back. In some ways you could back. argue that's unrivaled. It's a, yeah. Well, that's what a lot of people made the joke. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, they did leave themselves open for that one. But basically, I tested the board. I showed that the VRM was woefully inadequate and that the CPU throttled. I then pointed that their marketing is misleading and BS. And basically, the board's – there's two problems. Basically, the board's so garbage it shouldn't be on sale, but then it also has the misleading marketing to go on top of it. So mm-hmm. it was just – um. So nothing that I said was factually wrong. Nothing was over the top. Um, it was all very fair and, as I said, correct, honest, all that stuff. And I've worked with ASRock for, like, however long they've been around. Like, I don't even know, for, for ages, way back when they were making, like, multicolored-looking motherboards on green PCBs and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I'd, you know, how, how, uh, let's say a dozen different people I've worked with closely at ASRock over the years and that one bit of content, they were just like, okay, we're not answering your emails anymore. That was how they played that one. Eventually, I got them to answer an email by trying a few different people in the company. And they're like, oh, we just don't have allocation for you now. And that, that was how they ended that one. They did the same thing to Gamers Nexus over there, mm-hmm. Z490 uh, coverage as well. So Steve and, Steve and I got the axe at the same time. And that was how ASRock wanted to play it. So they, they thought that was the way to go. Um, and as Tim said, we're now in a fortunate position where that's just no skin off our back, doesn't bother us in the slightest, and we just go buy their boards, which is what I did for B550, and I've already bought their Z590 boards. So it just reflects poorly on them because even if the boards are good, you mm. know, it seems like they're trying to hide something or they, they don't have faith in their products. Um, like, and it's not us being entitled. Like, They don't have to supply us with review samples. Yeah. And I, I hate the way people always go down that path because I've worked with ASRock for well over a decade. Yeah. And when it was, you know, it was it really was mostly positive content because we were really focusing on their value offerings. So when we were doing that, they were more than happy for that to happen. But as soon as, you know, we went against what they were deemed to be positive coverage, I suppose, they were just like, nah, done. And um, now we don't want you sort of looking at our products anymore. And yeah, so we just go buy them anyway. But to answer the question um, quickly, basically, <laughs> with the, the whole influencers yeah. and tech reviewers, as Tim said, it's a very different thing. And I don't have a problem with the whole influencer, whether it's the Twitch streamer or whatever it may be, because they haven't positioned themselves to be a, you know honest, objective reviewers or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. They're just guys playing games. And if they get a sponsorship opportunity, well, good on them, more power to them. Whereas for someone like us, where we've positioned ourselves as someone who has your best interests at heart, not the companies or corporations or whatever it may be, and we're giving you what is meant to be unbiased, honest buying advice, well, then it really is on us to do that and not take, you know, (sighs) this rabbit hole of taking money from them. So we don't take money from AMD, NVIDIA, (laughs) Intel, right? But then we do take money from like, AIBs and we still review their products. So we've taken, like this year, for example, we've already taken money from ASUS, Gigabyte, MSI, but we've reviewed their products. And as our Patreon members kind of say, we've proven time and time again that if 
ASRock, well, we just talked about ASRock, mm-hmm. but say ASUS or MSI release a crappy product, we just call it as if we see it. Mm-hmm. So like MSI X570 motherboards, we absolutely buried those. MSI released a bad monitor, Tim tore it to shreds. Uh, ASUS screwed up their 5700 series of graphics cards and we, mm-hmm. we, you know, we let them rip. Tim thought the A15 was a crap laptop and we even bought a second one to drill holes in it to make our point. So <laughs> although we take money from these companies, we don't care about them getting, for a lack of a better term, butthurt over the content. It's like, if you don't like it, do what ASRock did. We'll just buy your products and continue. And we don't need that money from them. We're happy to do in-stream ads and you know, obviously make more money. But we're not going to do that if that costs us, you know, our freedom to review what we want or say what we want to say. Um, and just to close that one out, what does bother me a little bit is when we do see stuff like the 8K mm, yeah. meme. So that came from people who are respected within the industry, who have done independent reviews and have positioned themselves in a similar way that we have. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not really targeting someone like Linus in that. While I don't necessarily like that linus does that content i don't mm. think linus has positioned himself in the same way that you know gamers nexus or harbor unboxed has so it's a bit of a gray area with linus and it is fully disclosed mm-hmm. and it was fully disclosed by and everyone. i would almost argue he, he i would i would make the argument and I, get, I can't be sure of intent but i swear they made that video so over the top to kind of make it obvious it was paid for but yeah well i didn't again, like seeing did. it either though to be clear like i was like oh, yeah this is so even if they made it, they almost made a parody of how much of a parody it was, but still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not a big fan of sponsored videos, period. Like, you know, we saw the, the what was it, the Dyson vacuum or whatever, um, and Steve from Gamers Nexus made fun of that. I mean, it is it's not within the same industry, but you're still sort of selling out your audience in a way because you're pushing content on them that isn't necessarily what they subscribe to. There was a Dyson and- vacuum thing with... Wait. Yeah, that's right, wasn't it, Tim? The yeah, yeah. Oh, I yeah, haven't seen a, there it. Was a time I did not when know there that. Was like, it, there was like one day, I think, when all of these Dyson vacuum cleaner ads, and I'm going to call them an ad because they, they were a sponsored video, but effectively yeah, that, yeah. they were an ad. Um, and, yeah, it was just like, and, and they were targeting like the tech audiences. So they, it was I like think a, Linus did a video. and There's a few yeah. of them where they're like, you know, clean up your workstation area with yeah, a yeah. Dyson vacuum cleaner or whatever. And it was really clear that like Dyson had paid for all these videos to go live at the same at the same time. This would have been a few years ago, um, but <laughs> it, it sort of became a meme of like when you sh- when you should and shouldn't take a sponsored deal. You know, those situations where it doesn't really make a lot of sense. The times I think where I don't really have a problem with sponsored content is when the deal allows that creator to do something that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. So something like mm-hmm. 8K gaming, it's like, mm-hmm. well, if you really were interested in testing 8K gaming, you probably could have done that without that video have being sponsored. But for mm-hmm. example, if you wanted to, let's say, do a, a tour of a closed factory of a of a popular brand or something like that, and that was a sponsored video, like, hey, come and have a look at how our product is made mm-hmm. and we'll sponsor that that content. Um, I think that is kind of a, a better, much better use of the sponsored content stuff where sort of the viewers are still getting something out of it, but the brand's also getting out of it, you know, a, a video that's totally focused on them, it's yeah. exposure. Um, so, yeah, the, the Dyson vacuum cleaner ad, I personally wouldn't have done either, but, yeah, 
Well, and I would just kind of jump in from my perspective. I think it depends how your channel or podcast or whatever got started. Like what was about, how were you making money from the beginning? And I can speak for, you know, me and Dan, we weren't (laughs) like for the first (laughs) year and a half, almost two years, there was not money being made. We were always doing this because we liked it. And we had other Mm -hmm. jobs. Dan still has another job. And, you know, but eventually the support came and then we got enough funding. And so like two things, then it's never been profitable for me to do that. And I imagine for you as well, because it was always about something else. I'm sure there's some hybrid channels where this is much more of a dilemma. But if it's always been about, you know, just giving your honest opinion, then that's kind of what your North Star's always been, that's just kind of your what you're used to. That's probably what you're going to be inclined to do forever because it feels safe. It actually feels safer for me to just be honest because that's what's always worked, actually. It would be crazy for me to try taking money for a review once when I know that could screw up something that's been so stable for over a year. you know. And also, I'll just say the more independent, especially from something directly like Patreon that I get, the less inclined I am to click on ad emails I get for including a sponsor because I know the plurality of my money comes from patrons. So my focus is finishing the content, not on just seeing how many inquiries for ads have come in. And I'm sure you guys feel that all the time, that the bigger your Patreon Mm -hmm. grows and those similar types of revenue sources, the less inclined you are to even give as much mental brain space to an ad offer. Yeah, I mean, we don't pursue them much at all. We do, what, like 20 videos a month, and we mm-hmm. maybe do two um, ads, maybe, um, yep. probably on average around that. So it's definitely not a focus for us um, and very similar situation to you. Like I was writing for TechSpot. You know, Tim was uh, at university, and so I had just a basic income there doing that and joined. I did a few other things on the side and mm-hmm. yeah, life was good. It was, I didn't have a nine till five job, had a lot of freedom and yeah, loved it. And then YouTube came along. I sort of got sucked into it almost against my uh, <laughs> sort of, well, how would you describe it? Matt started, it dragged me into it and <laughs> yeah, I won't go down that, that path. We talked about that in the first one, I suppose, but for the first two years, I, it would have definitely cost me money, the channel, because we started off with pretty good camera gear, microphones. I think it cost me like $2,000 to build my set. Um, so we spent quite a bit of money setting it all up because we were serious about doing it properly. And then I got sucked into the whole making video thing, really enjoyed that. And we are where we are now because of it. But I guess the point is, we even from when I got into TechSpot, the goal there was never to make money. It was, I love mm-hmm. playing with yeah. computer hardware and want to test it out. Absolutely. See what, so the, at no point has money been the focus uh, or motiv- or a motivation. So it's, it's great now that we're in the position we're in now where we don't actually have to worry about money at all. Like I can go down to the local computer store, buy as many motherboards mm-hmm. as I need for testing, and it's not even a consideration. So that's, I guess it's great that we've worked to that position, as Tim says, um, we can buy laptops to drill holes in them and we're not like worried about recovering any money about it. It's just like that's an investment for the channel. So, yeah, and it's like I don't even really know how to put it into words, how to describe it. Like the channel's more than a job. It's kind of like yeah. I know this sounds cliche or lame, but it's kind of like our baby. Like it's, <laughs> 
it's this it's this thing that means more to us than a job or money or whatever. It's the thing we're really proud of, we're really passionate about. We love watching it grow and putting time and effort into it. And I've never ever been uh, inclined to sort of take the shortcut, the easy money. Like you know, someone throws some money to do this or do that. We've just yeah, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to explain, really, but hopefully, you sort yeah. of get what I mean. I think yeah. it's important as well to to point out with all of this discussion is that even though there's things that we necessarily wouldn't do, like for example, taking money from the companies we've mentioned, we would, probably wouldn't do sponsored videos and that sort of thing. It doesn't mean that like people that do that are, are, are wrong or that all sponsored videos are terrible and you know a blight on the industry. <laughs> it, it really is a a, a significant case by case basis. Like you mm-hmm. almost have to evaluate every single sponsored deal, every single ad on its own merits. Yeah. Like, what was the deal? What were they asking for? What channel is it being run on? What what are they? What's that channel's brand and identity? Um, which really makes it a situation where, as you say, like Twitch streamers, it's almost a right. non-issue that they're sponsored <laughs> yeah. by Nvidia or whatever. Whereas the more you get down the into uh, the reviewing path, the more problematic that content becomes. So. Yeah, I've always mm. talked about how I don't really like creators jumping on board. Even I'm uncomfortable, for example, bringing up like a digital foundry example because I don't really want to drag them into something like this or criticize their work all that much. But I, I really don't like it when I guess people just start slagging off on creators that do take deals like this because the situation and circumstances that a, a channel that's not hard unboxed is under is going to be very different to the situation that we're under, and someone may, in fact, need to take a deal like that to feed their family. I, I don't really know what the situation is there. So yeah, and it's, it's always also, something you need to be very careful about. Definitely, and it's also like we've just made those rules from the start. We're like, look, we do a lot of NVIDIA mm. versus AMD stuff. They're kind of the core of a lot of our content, and we don't. We can draw the line somewhere. Like we don't need AMD, NVIDIA, Intel money, and if if sure we. we uh, those companies have definitely given us money because what they do is they go to their AIBs mm-hmm. and they're like, here's X amount of money, advertise Z490 yeah. motherboards because they know if people are buying Z490 motherboards, they get locked in the platform. We're happy to go. If they want to go about it in that roundabout way, that's perfectly fine. But that's not NVIDIA saying to me, you have to talk about ray tracing, this, this, and this. Like I can negotiate that with the AIBs. And often I say to the AIBs, no talking points. Like it's a product that I want to have tested. Here's what I'm willing to say mm-hmm. about it. But, you know, sometimes there are talking points if I, I think they're reasonable. Um, but, yeah, like someone like we gave the Linus example before. Like it really annoys me, especially now, when people come to us and be like, you know, Linus is such a shill. He's so bought yeah. by NVIDIA. Like that does annoy me because Linus just gave NVIDIA the biggest butt-kicking I've ever yeah. seen any media give a company before. So, it's like if we only saw the 8K videos and that kind of stuff from Linus, it'd be like, yeah, okay, well, they've sort of got to prove themselves like what we've done with, because again, we're in the same position. We take money from ASUS, we take money from MSI, we review their products. So he really has to prove that if they do something bad or they make a crap product, he's not going to just ignore it and let it blow over. And I mean, Linus came he out does, of the gate yeah. swinging on that one. Like we made a little tweet and it was like, I think Tim tagged the editorial, change your editorial direction. That's like all we said. Half an hour later, I'm on the phone to Linus for an hour. So he takes this <laughs> stuff. And 
And like, I've never <laughs> spoken to Linus. He didn't really even know about our, our channel. He just heard about NVIDIA trying to, you know, manipulate reviewers and straight away, you know, got involved. So mm-hmm. to call Linus an NVIDIA yeah. shill is just, that's too far. It's definitely a He's bridge definitely too far. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Like, and, I, and I would say, I mean, just to, for this point you're making in general, just like guys on Twitter and in the comments, chill out, man. <laughs> like, like whether we say, and I think people like this part here, I'll just, I'll just say, I think this is connected to what we're talking about. I can disagree with another channel and disagree with something they did. And I don't have mm-hmm. to have a blood feud and hate them. You guys <laughs> yeah, just to respect them. Like, for you sure, know, absolutely. And I'm going to disagree. Mm-hmm. I know I've disagreed with you guys on things before. I actually think I had a different YouTube name. I got to give you credit, Steve. You really uh, <laughs> you had to change with, the channel name. <laughs> yeah, I, you, there, before I made this channel, just so you know, there are a couple of times we argued in the YouTube comments, and you put up with like a multi-paragraph thing, and then had a multi-paragraph response. It actually just made me respect you more, to be honest. Um, but I'll never tell you the name of that that account because um, I don't want you, you may to have hate to me. change if you disagree with this in a moment. You may have to change this one soon. Just be aware of that. <laughs> Oh, no, but like history repeating. I think some people just have a hard time understanding or or, or just as an FYI to people, I guess I'll say like, look, me and Dan do a podcast. We talk for hours a week. You might hear us for one minute say we disagree with one thing someone did. That doesn't mean we like hate it or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think Mm -hmm. that's just the big caveat I would add on this conversation we're having now is guys. Yes, we may have disagreed with someone, but this isn't like the start of a war, you know, rallying the. uh, crazy people on Twitter. So there's there's a yeah. lot of them. And we talk to a lot of the people, you know, our fellow creators and, and all that. Like it's, we can disagree with them in public or in private and still get along, still, you know, go to Computex, have a beer with them, be friends and all that situation. I, I think it's a, this whole tech community is actually a really positive one in general. And mm-hmm. whenever there are disagreements like this, like Linus may see a snippet of this where we say making 8K gaming videos is bad, but we could still chat with them about NVIDIA issues when, you know, they try and blow us up and still respect each other's work, still catch up, have beers, all that sort of thing, Um, which I don't think you can say for every single group of creators on a platform like YouTube. There's certainly far more toxic communities out there where there there are are. legitimate (laughs) battles and feuds between creators, whereas I think in the tech space it's a much more collaborative effort and I wouldn't say that we would have a few really with anyone or really hate most of the big players in the market in any space so uh-huh. which is which is great because I really don't want to deal with that stuff yeah, I, I was gonna to. say because man I just don't have the energy I don't know how some people who do it do <laughs> no definitely it's not fun all right well I've got one more reader mail here that's really important so Jim Ramsey Corey writes in and says Tim Tams or Oreos I don't even know what a Tim Tam is. I had to oh, look man. it up. Is this an Australian candy bar? I've heard of it. Yes, okay. it's very a biscuit. Good. Yeah, it, it's a it's a biscuit, and they're way better than Oreos. Way better. Ooh, okay, no doubt about it. Tim Tams. The Oreos were my favorite candy when I was a kid. So I don't know. I I haven't. Had, I think I'm. I don't know if I've had Tim Tams. I may have. I, I might have once, but I don't know. I mean, I had Tim. Oh, go on. Sorry. I'll put a link in the description for people, too. Yeah, it's like, (laughs) it's it's quite similar to an Oreo, I guess, in some ways, in that it's basically like a chocolate-coated Oreo where the the cream part of an Oreo is also like a chocolate sort of 
What would you describe it as, Steve? Like a, it's very similar, isn't it? It's like a chocolate cream yeah, that's, in the middle. That's, that's accurate. You're, yeah. You got two biscuits like this. You got your your chocolate cream in the middle, and then it's like the whole thing is dipped in chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. so Tim's will... team, Tim Tam. But Steve, what is what do you think? Well, I'm benchmarking them in my head, and I'm like, mm-hmm. if you gave me a packet of each, they would both be empty within about five minutes. So. Yeah. It's kind of an eve. It's, it's it's like picking what's the better gaming processor. <laughs> They're that close. <laughs> um, I honestly cannot pick. I don't know. Uh, I'd, well, I'd take on, them Steve. equally. What about this? An, you <laughs> okay. cannot Tim Tam slam an Oreo. It's not possible. So Tim Tam slam is where it's a, so the biscuit is chocolate coated around the whole thing, right? You take a bite out of each end, so you yeah. expose the chocolate oh. wafer in the middle. And then you uh-huh. use the biscuit to drink milk as a straw. I've never <laughs> so done that. The milk goes through the Tim Tam, flavoring it as it goes, and that's this a is something slam. you've done. Yeah, it's well, I, it truly is. I, yeah, I think Australians you have to be, would know what we're talking about. Yeah, you'd have to be about ten years younger than me to have experienced that. I'd say so. Tim's in yeah. the right, <laughs> the right age group there. Um, I guess yeah, you, you haven't sold Oreos me as well. Yeah, you can also stack them together and stuff. Them, so, mm. so that's well, kind of, so the Tim Tam Slam is kind of like the DLSS tiebreaker between these two. <laughs> well, in my opinion, they're just better overall. Not to say Oreos are bad because they're still pretty good. I really uh, like I'm Oreos. Huge, yeah, the funniest thing would be if, like, after everything we talked about, the most controversial thing was just people on Twitter like adding Oreo and saying, "Can you believe they said this?" <laughs> mm. See, with Tim Tams, they can be a bit richer, so it depends on the mood you're in. Whereas Oreos are a bit s- smoother. I, I, Easy I'm to not eat, very good yeah. at re- I'm not very good at reviewing uh, these biscuit treats, but um, yeah, I'm not saying anything. I'm leaving it at that. I'm on the fence. So I've, I, I've <laughs> taken the I've taken the easy way out once again. I've honestly didn't expect that much of an answer, but there was actually quite a quite a bit of thought and discussion put into this for being about cookies. <laughs> Yeah, well, Tim and I do like food, so <laughs> usually our Patreon slash Floatplane live streams, a good portion of it is uh, discussing what we're going to get for lunch, despite the fact that we get the same thing every time. But anyway, <laughs> that's how we roll. <laughs> all right, well, that's all the reader mails I had to go through. I thought that would be a pretty good one to end it. It was better than expected, actually. Um, I mean, is there anything else you wanted to bring up? I mean, or at the very least, uh, I imagine people have figured out who you are by this point in the conversation, but like, go on, like, what is the long levy of things you'd like to plug? Oh, I don't know. I've just about run out of voice at this point. I did a six hour live stream building computers at Tim's place. When was it? Two days ago. Then yesterday we did three hours of stream and Q and A's. And then, yeah, my voice is, you can probably hear it's a bit different than normal or it feels it anyway. I don't know what it sounds like because I've got the headphones on, but it feels dry. So, yeah, we've we've been going for like nearly two and a half hours at this point. So I think we've probably covered just about everything. But what about you, Tim? Yeah, no, that's it. Just you know, hard rock box. You probably you probably know who we are, so you can Google us and find all our stuff anyway. So that's pretty much it. All right. Well, I mean, I've been your host, Tom. Dan, you're the last one. I'll give you the last Uh, word. What? What? Anything else you would like to say? Um. I guess just to plug my, what I do outside of this, uh, uh, plug zebrafish research, <laughs> and that's it. All right, thanks for watching, everybody. <laughs>
The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website, Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast videos, articles, and other media. However, Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law is Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. And at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Mohamed Al-Kawari, Roger Lau, James Crasset, Justin Pears, Zachary Martin, Terrence Harrod, Drita Fold, Bill S, Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegard, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo King Kilo, Fatboy Deseru, Daniel Hyde, Burke Garcia, Tara Reed, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Sean Vollmer, My Name Is Nobody, Joel Corey, Olethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wontuk, Ivan214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, Divider Symbol, Jan Rauner, Rubber Ducks, Michael Baggy, Allie Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Crow, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Hardforum.com, Sam MacArthur, Total Silo, Soul Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Kerry Valdino, Endless Loggins, Tom San Filippo, Justice Brennan, Viking R., Trevor Power, Stu, Elenia, Nanyan, Daniel Nishbal, Franco Frederick, Hardware Numbers, Alex Carastillo, Dark Rain 2049, Lane Perry, Joseph Kerman, Carlos Valdez, Carnivore Bear, Denovin Russell, Zebra Zebra, Zlicky, Martin Porchegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Spencer King, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canos Jr., Christopher Foster, Kiwi Phil, Dahoo Sarah Light, Anthony Gareffa, Matthew Griffin, Alex, Joseph Loria, Luis Correa, Deke, Jeezy Raman, Raul Abeneni, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude23, Brian Riggleman, Chris Williams, Ryan Denescu, Dave McCoy, Valco Malev, Gabe Langner, David Marcos Gomez, Morton Svensson, Andrew, Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Scott Riff Schneider, Mai Sharona, Aaron, Roman, Jacob Stankowitz, Air Rats, Wakir Khan, Eshildar Epstein, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Chris Licata, Justin Thomas, Tam Miller, Sami Malas, Kevin Chen, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpeet Sharma, Meat and Pork, Jimmy NG, Mads, Beachhorn, Benjamin Oshley, Jijitz, Sign Park, Dame P, John Wizink, Sam Vensel, Mark Mitchell, Brucha, Mike and Dean, and of course you thank you to Sahara for the music.